is it? I'm afraid I can't answer that. Why not? Why not? It's kind of hard to explain. Uh, is he the caretaker? Uh, Are you the caretaker? No. Is he transient? Is he a... Are you a transient? No, not exactly. Well, then tell him to show himself. Show yourself. Here's the thing. I do don't scream, okay? I get that a lot. Are you a burglar? I must warn you that I am armed. Hello? Listen, cut the crap, okay? If you don't show yourself right now, I'm gonna have you arrested for trespassing. Hey, okay, jeez, calm down, lady. Here I come! Welcome back to Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast, the podcast where we visit the manor of Amblin' Entertainment to check out the ghosts of movies past. Ooh. I am one part of your ghostly trio for this episode, Andy Godian. I'm the second part of the ghostly trio for the episode, Stinky, uh, Josh Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> and to make up the trio, we have invited back guest Michael Perry, who you may remember from our episode on The Land Before Time. Welcome back to Ramblin' Mikey. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here in your basement uh, discussing a ghost movie. <laughs> I knew I, I knew this would happen to me at one point in my uh, as I was approaching thirty that I'd be in the basement talking about Casper. <laughs> it's been a dream of mine from a very young age. All roads lead here. We had unfinished business. <laughs> That we did. Now, M- Mikey, you joined us last time for The Land Before Time, and you rejoin us at Casper, so you're, you're very much hitting big childhood milestones yeah. <laughs> for me personally. Cozy milestones, too. I think particularly cozy and sad milestones. Indeed, indeed. Um, is it, before we get cracking on, is there any update on uh, your E.T. cries or anything like that? Have you watched E.T. since? There is, actually. I have, <laughs> I have watched E.T. again since we recorded hey. Land Before Time. Um, drum roll, put in so drum roll after. Okay. I th- in, in think post. it was the first time I've watched it in a good decade. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it makes me cry. Not in the same part that it makes you cry, Josh. It's the John Williams soaring score for bikes taking off that really hits you in the feels, isn't yeah, it? Uh, it's the last scene for me. It's, yeah. the, it's the goodbye scene. Mm. I found it very hard to suppress. That's always the one that kind of rises it out of you. It feels like the part where yeah. I might go. And that has nearly happened a couple of times. Yeah. Still hasn't Not happened quite. Yet. Not it, yet. It, it's tickling. It's tickling. Mm. It's tickling those tear glands. <laughs> <laughs> okay, chalk that. I can't think yeah. where Mike was last time. I guess you weren't. You were, you were a non crier, I believe, the last time we checked. No, it. I'm, I'm, I'm a crier, but I didn't have enough recent experience of watching yes, ET to, to say, as an adult, sure. this, this is getting me. And I think as a kid, I was probably 
mm. too embarrassed by sort of yeah. watching scenes with charged emotional content um, as... Well, you know, as 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 much, <laughs> as much of a problem as that sounds, I, I think it's a case of just I've grown up to embrace the I feel like emotional that, stakes. That specific point will make a return during the course of our conversation here today. Indeed, about have we told the listeners? What I've mentioned is we've here? mentioned Casper. Now, I know not to jump the gun on, on our personal context, I know that this film, like you said, was quite a cornerstone for all of us. Mm. Uh, but just in case a listener is not familiar with the film and hasn't watched it on the manifold places it's a- available to be watched before listening to this. Free trial, I hear you. <laughs> please do fill them in, Andrew, on what well, indeed. it is about. On the cliffside of the aptly named Friendship Main stands the architectural wonder of Whipstaff Manor which is so spooky that it must be haunted. And of course it is. <laughs> which the kids of friendship know all too well. The manor is home to the ghostly spirits of Casper, the friendly ghost, vo- voiced by Malachi Pearson and his more nefarious ghoulish uncles. The ghostly trio, Stretch, voiced by Je- Joe Nipote, uh, Stinky, voiced by Joe Al- Alaski, and Fatso, voiced by Brad Garrett. Whipstaff Manor has recently become the property of the Gallus Gaffrin Carrigan Crittenden, played by Cappy Moriarty. The only thing left to her in her father's will. After throwing the deed in a fire in a fit of fury, an old pirate message is revealed. Buccaneers and bury gold, Whipstaff doth the treasure hold. Keen to get her grubby mitts on the alleged treasure, she and her spineless attorney Dibs, played by Eric Idle, head over to check it out, only to discover its spiritual inhabitants. Keen to get rid of the pesky ghosts, sorry, the living impaired, Carrigan hires therapist to the dead, Dr. James Harvey, played by Bill Pullman, to rid Whipstaff of of the ghoulish pests, as I've said. (laughs) (laughs) As I mentioned previously. (laughs) A widowed single father, Dr. Harvey, along with his begrudging daughter, Begrudging de- teenage daughter Cat, Christina Ricci, has been moving from town to town taking on new cases to help ghosts complete their unfinished business, all the while holding on to the hope that he might find the spirit of his deceased wife. After making a promise to Cat that this will be his last case, it is not long until they become acquainted with Casper and his uncles, although un- unlike those before them, they aren't so quick to run for the door. As her dad gets to work and unpacking the ghostly trio psych- psychological makeup, Cat and Casper get to know each other, with Casper growing infatuated and a little jealous as Cat settles into her new high school. All the while, Cat ha- helps Casper to recollect his past life before he was a ghost, as well as uncovering the mysterious work his father has left unfinished in the basement. But as friendships form, just how patient will Carrigan remain? And can Casper ever really find a way to live as a kid again? <laughs> can I keep that? <laughs> you can. It's recorded. It's going it's uh, to go online for you to listen to whenever you want to. <laughs> uh, I guess how it works sometimes. <laughs> so we've, uh, we've seen each other several times socially um, since this episode was on the immediate horizon. And we've really fought to hold in. It's like committed we are to this podcast. Really fought to hold in our, our, our feelings. We're not there just yet. Before we get there, 
Let's talk a bit about a little bit more of a tease in the ticket. What this film uh, <laughs> means to us and meant to mm-hmm. us as kids. I want to start with Mike because this has been something on the books with your name next to it for a long, long time now. Maybe even back when we first started two, the podcast. Two years, yeah. pretty much, to yeah. the day. <laughs> so, why? What made you yeah. want to do this film? What is your connection to it from when you were a kid? What do you remember? I remember when you guys announced that you were making this podcast. Actually, mm. I think it was the day I moved into the flat where I'm currently staying in, and. I think I was out buying pizza when I saw that you guys had tweeted about it and you'd mentioned DM us if you're mm. anything you're interested in. So I had a quick scan while waiting for my pizza of like Amblin movies and was just making mental notes as I went down, just like which are the ones I'd be really keen to get my teeth into. And I think Land Before Time was up there with a bullet and then Casper a little mm-hmm. further down I saw him was just like, hell yeah, like, <laughs> like, let's do this. And I think part of that came from having touched on Casper a bit when we were at university. Mm. Yeah, I remember having ago. conversations with you. Yeah. yeah. It's, interesting. it's come up in these friendships before. Um, and that was the main thing. It was a sense of, let's recontextualize Casper 10 years later. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 20 plus years from when we were enjoying it as kids. Uh, as a kid, similar to The Land Before Time, repeat listeners are probably going to think that we were a bit of you know, a set of skin flints in our household. Like the Lamb Before Time, this was one that we had taped off the television. <laughs> but if the technology is good, then use it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and me and my sister used to watch this a lot. I have a bit like you were talking about in the Lamb Before Time episode, Andy, like a real tactile mm. relationship with this movie. There are certain textures, mm. sights, sounds. Clumps. Yeah. <laughs> Clumps. <laughs> that... Brown sludge. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that really throw me back. Um, and this one, my relationship with Casper, the film, was one that we would watch repeatedly. I have a particular tie to... I remember watching this film a lot when we would visit my uh, my nan on my dad's side mm. in Southport around Christmas time. Mm. Like, we'd always go up there on Boxing Day. Um, we'd settle in, we'd get fish and chips. The adults would then go out to mooch around the town and me and my sister would just kind of like, let's just stick a film on. And I remember Casper being like the quintessential film for that. Mm-hmm. So something that was sort of like scheduled into the calendar, like every year we will watch this movie more or less at the same time. And the movie existed for us on that level. And we also, as one of the first PlayStation 1 games that we ever owned, <laughs> as the first console we ever owned, we uh, the, the yeah. tie-in game of Casper was one of the first we had. I think it was that and Crash Bandicoot 2 might have been the... Good combat. <laughs> yeah. So, weirdly for you, is Casper kind of like one of these films that, despite not being a Christmas film, feels like a Christmas film? I was thinking that watching it because there are, I don't know exactly what they are, but there's a lot of sleigh bell sound in mm. James Horner's score, mm. especially in the opening titles when the Polaroid hits the floor and Casper, the, the mm. film title comes up. It feels like it's got this really festive swing to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, yeah. How about yourself, Josh? Where the, where does the origins deep, of Casper lie for you? I didn't appreciate just how much, how deep in me this was until I watched it again yesterday. It was one I remember because I was about two and a half when it was in cinemas. I guess maybe mm. or just shy of three. So any memory I think yeah, I like have May ninety five. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Any memory I think I have is doubtless mm. fake and implanted, but I have got a recollection in my head of either seeing the film poster in this dimly lit corridor in a cinema or maybe seeing a stand in my local video shop. When it, mm. The latter is more likely, I think, actually. But the the design of the poster, sort of that, that royal blue 
with the fond and Casper look poking his head over the. Mm-hmm. That is such a seared in my head image. And I latched, I latched onto that a lot when I was a kid, and I thought, I really want to yeah, see that. whatever the film that's behind this thing is, and I'm obsessed with it. So, I, yeah, it was an early purchase or an early Christmas gift for me, I think, and I watched it over and over and over and over again. Uh, very much lived in it. Um, I remembered why that will have been watching it again this time, and it's because the last 20 minutes has a lot of semi-roller coaster antics, <laughs> traps adjacent yeah, business going on. <laughs> yeah. So it was always one that I refer and, and like you say, the sense memory of a lot of the textures, mm-hmm. the, the the viscosity of it um, stuck in my head too. And then like you say, it came up again in university. I remember in my case, I had it on DVD somehow. I, I survived the transition from VHS to DVD <laughs> somehow, but I never watched it. And I was auditing my DVD shelf when I was at uni. And that was one of the ones that was sort of a bit uncertain. Do I keep this or do I bin it? And I watched it then. And it was very surprisingly effective. And it got me emotionally in a way that it hadn't when I was a kid. Because I was too young to really appreciate it. So watching watch, watching it again this time, I had in mind that really, really intense emotional reaction to the final 15, 20 minutes. Mm. And uh, that's been the lingering memory of the film going in this time. But yeah. yeah, it's it's been it's been there throughout my life pretty much. Surprisingly, for a film that's maybe not in the nowhere near the same regard as something like Back to the Future, yeah, or um, Jurassic Park, or Jurassic Park. Yeah. it's probably adjacent to like Batteries Not Included. Mm. Yeah, small size. Yeah, <laughs> this is certainly for for me. But yeah, it's, it was mm-hmm. very very prevalent throughout childhood, young adulthood, and yeah. now early thirties. <laughs> what about yourself though? Yeah, um very so me and my sister used to watch it a lot. It was one we had on VHS and I don't Taped rem- off the telly? No, no, the 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 proper job. <laughs> 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 the royal blue design. The royal blue yeah, box. Um, <laughs> one of which I, I like there's a box of old VHSs that's ended up in my old bedroom back home and I was rummaging through that the like last time I was there and I found like Jurassic Park, Small Soldiers, Casper. It was quite fun particularly picking out all the amblin ones Mm. and like casper was one we used to watch a lot um i remember one of our old neighbors also had the casper spirit of beginning and casper meets wendy vhs's Mm. so all three of them were the trilogy was ones that were quite fresh for me like ones i would come (laughs) back to a lot as a child (laughs) but even as a kid, you kind of you got the sense of like this one looks much better. This one clearly has a bit more going into it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was one that was often on rotation and one I loved a lot mm. and kind of left in childhood for a while. And it was in when I was doing my master's degree about eight years ago. I came back to it. So I did my dissertation on CGI and performance. Mm. And as we'll, I'm sure we'll get to, this is quite a significant film. In regards to CGI and particularly performance in CGI, um, so the last time I watched it was very much in an academic capacity, yeah. and like I left it quite late in the day, so it was a lot of just really like going into certain <clears throat> scenes and like kind of nit- like really nitpicking certain mm. sequences and not really appreciating the film as a whole. Yeah. So it has been very nice to kind of come back to this artifact of childhood with the appreciation of just letting the film wash mm-hmm. back over you and it, it, it's been it's been it's been very touching <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I mean I think that may be the longest answer any of us have given to that question maybe this podcast yes. <laughs> it's been there it's been there throughout it's been since, been since I can't remember maybe. when we would have gotten that video it's just a mm. video we always had you, yeah you, you don't remember 
hmm. when it would, was gifted or what point it came into yeah. went onto the shelf but yeah. it was just always there you've got the DVD too so you clearly I don't clearly have the DVD. survived that's, that's, oh is that Mike's that's DVD that's Mike's yeah. DVD oh, so, so. so at what point did you oh no Mike, mine that was DVD. bought a couple months ago when, oh. I, <laughs> right, when right. I knew that I was doing this episode um yeah, picked yeah. that one up in FOP. And uh, <laughs> last night on the second watch, uh, cracked open some of the bonus features, did a couple more with Andy <laughs> just before we recorded. Uh-huh. So interesting to go through those. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty decent, pretty stacked, uh, pretty stacked good disc. Good, good disc. disc. Worth, <laughs> worth picking up. Maybe I'll, I'll take the plunge to 4K once uh, we finish this so recording. In, interesting enough, in that kind of chat there, we've all talked about the film being the film for us mm. despite the fact that it is a pre-existing mm. comic book character and a cartoon character was that ever anything that kind of came into your sphere of casper when you were kids the cartoon or i, the, I, I suspect or the maybe comics? i watched a little bit of the spooktacular new adventures of casper which oh yeah that came was in the wake followed of this. after this that was it? the amblin animate the ambulation series but i i never saw any of the previous stuff i don't think or read any of the um mm. i've got a uh, again one of my Friends from school had a video of like the old 60s cartoons, Mm -hmm. but it's not something I ever really remember watching. I can just picture the cover and particularly the the way it's drawn Mm. on it, but it's just white, big round eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I can can remember the iconography. I just don't think Mm. I engage with it at all outside of this film and the game. Yeah. Uh, None of the classic Casper I also had a PS2 game. Spirited Dimension or something, Spirit Dimension. Well, I didn't. My uh, friend and uh, theme music, <laughs> rambling theme music composer, <laughs> Robert Hunter Clayton, had the, <laughs> had the PlayStation game. <laughs> did, did, did you ever partake? Yes, yes. I, we used to play it around at his house. It was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Slash poorly designed. <laughs> yeah, so many of those hastily designed tie-in games are just impossible. Well, and it's the bad guy from A Spirited Beginning is the main antagonist in the game. Oh, so the I can James only Earl Jones ass- character. Yeah, I, so I can only assume that it was a video game made for that movie. <laughs> Surely more ex- the more expensive of the two. Yeah. <laughs> The entirety of uh, of the straight to video <laughs> prequels are on YouTube, Spirit of Beginning and Casper Meets Wendy. So if you're a Casper head, guys and gals, then I give, am give tempted it a go. to watch Casper Meets Wendy again. <laughs> Is that because you have fonder memories of that one? I have fonder memories of that one. I remember there at least being a bit more of like kind of plot and consequence. <laughs> choose between Hilary Duff and a returning Kathy Moriarty or mm. Steve Guttenberg and the criminal Laurie Loughlin. Yeah. <laughs> I go for the former. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good thing you mentioned his origins in paperback and animated form because that's a good... It's a good segue. Uh, good segue. I love giving you segues. Into I. <laughs> right. So yes, as Andrew mentioned, uh, Casper began as Casper the Friendly Ghost, um, an animated creation by Seymour Wright and Joe Oriolo, uh, initially intended as the basis for a children's storybook. Uh, there was little interest in the idea originally, so Oriolo, while Rape was on military service in World War II, sold the book rights to Paramount Pictures' famous studios animation division for a total of $175, Ooh. which is all those boys ever received. <gasps> no! They got nothing of anything else. Are you kidding? That's it. $175. Oh. The first... Uh, yeah, the first uh, Andy is clutching his chest. Yeah. <laughs> visibly shaken. <laughs> My heart! 
the first novel tune, which is what um, famous studios referred to their animations as, yeah. Tavija Casper was The Friendly Ghost, which was released in 1945, and which led to a series of 55 in total, which ran until 1959. During this run, the character started to feature in Harvey Comics around mm-hmm. 1952, and in 59, which might be what ended the famous studio's run, they purchased the character outright, so it became a Harvey Comics fixture. No more famous studios. Yeah, bye-bye famous <laughs> studios. Bye-bye famous studios. <laughs> and still, right, Noriolo received nothing. Oh. Um, he became one of their most popular characters, headlining dozens of comic book titles. He also went on to appear in five television series throughout the back half of the 20th century and into the 21st century. These were Matty's Fun Day Funnies, which ran from <laughs> 1959 to 1961, <laughs> the new Casper cartoon show from 63 to 70, Casper and the Angels from 79 to 80. <laughs> Who are the Angels? <laughs> Who was Charlie's produced... Angels. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> guess who Casper and the Angels was produced by? Returning animation. <laughs> Return... Anna Barbera? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know it. I was looking through these titles thinking, okay, I know undoubtedly one of these has to be Anna Barbera. Uh, Amblin's own The Spooktacular New Adventures of Casper, which was mentioned previously, which ran from 96 to 98. And most recently, Casper's Scare School, which ran from 09 till 12. So oh, wow. I didn't realise anything yeah. that was that recent with is this Casper. Casper's Scare School is like... this is Casper's like Scare like Slightly embittered older man. It's going back to Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. I was thinking Saved by the Bell of College years when Screech stays on as whatever Dean or whatever he is. Screech in Tweed. Yeah, I remember. So Spielberg wanted to produce a film adaptation of Casper the Friendly Ghost, probably from some childhood association. Yeah, he had. well, I, he, I think you mentioned as much in the, in the documentary. Like they were all kind of like re- recollecting of having yeah. this, particularly the image of Casper. Mm. But yes, uh, Har- Harvey Comics or the more the Harvey Comics sort of yeah. from the fifties into the sixties. Yeah. So we can't we can't credit Hanna Barbera again <laughs> <Not> this time. <laughs> <Not> this time. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, uh, Alex Proyas who was fresh off the crow, was initially signed on as director and he was quite excited to make something that was quite a children's fantasy that was quite dark and in the vein of Wizard of Oz, which was one of his favourite films. Uh, but he did ultimately leave due to creative differences over the screenplay. Now, there's an interview that he did with Comic Book Resources. Um, as I've picked a few quotes out because it's quite revealing. Um, unfortunately, it started to move away from its potential at some point and that's the reason I politely bowed out. There was a script, but it was one of those situations where things were rewritten at much too late a stage in the whole process. You've got to be at the stage when, when you start pre-production where you are confident in the material, because if you don't have that, you'll be lost without a map. You're absolutely in an impossible situation. That's the r- one rule that I'll never break again. I learned that the hard way. This so. man went on to make God's of Egypt. <laughs> Integrity and schmegrity. <laughs> I, yeah, well, I quite like some of his stuff, but I've never oh, seen yeah, Gods yeah, of it's, Egypt. It's not good. It feels like a man making what he wants to make. <laughs> so it's, I mean, from some of the stuff that we've done before, it sounds like that's quite a common practice. Even in things that have worked out perfectly, like Back to the Future, yeah. that was such a flying by the seat of your pants production. Mm-hmm. I imagine if you're not into that, if you're not able to move with those grooves, yeah, particularly if you've got go something with. really fixed into your, yeah. your mindset of what this that move is going to be. be. Yeah. I also, one of my favorite little trivia facts I saw was when they were also considering directors, 
There's a fact on IMDb that just reads, after watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles several times, executive producer Steven Spielberg approached its director Steve Barron to direct the film. Uh, the Baron turned it down, later admitting it was a mistake. But I just really like the idea of Steven Spielberg just watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and going, roll that again! <laughs> Bring me this man! <laughs> <laughs> like, I know I've said it a million times on the podcast, but he's the reason that Babu Frick is in the final, yeah. the final reel of Rise of Skywalker. Isn't because... it because of the like he leaned in, was, like really concerned, like Babu Frick's around? Where's, he, where's Babu Frick? When Babu Frick's not on screen, everyone should be asking, "Where's Babu Frick?" There's real like Tom Cruise doodle energy to that anecdote, isn't there? It's like Steven Spielberg's just mm. almost like it reverts to like a childish part of his mind of just like you know, but, but, but that guy, he, he's he's he was in it, right? You got you got more of him. <laughs> the Doodle story, listeners, is a, a anecdote from the Adam Buxton podcast that Joe Cornish had. He's now completed it. Had been doling out on the Christmas specials for the last five or six years, and it's very funny. So <laughs> give that a listen. You're welcome, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> what he does in there. Um, We're not finished yet. <laughs> uh, with the film already in pre-production and Amblin wanting to stick to their release schedule, they look to find a replacement. Stop! So after the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> situation, Spielberg, I guess once he'd finished re-watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles... Steven, you gotta, you gotta stop. We gotta make the movie. <laughs> he changed channel and he happened upon an episode of a TV series, Brooklyn Bridge, which was directed by a young Brad Silberling, and decided that this kid deserved a shot with his feature debut. Uh, another young man, Mr. J.J. Abrams, speaking of mm. Rise of Skywalker, mm. uh, came in to do uncredited rewrites of the script, which included introducing the backstory of Casper as being the ghost of one Casper McFadden, a boy who died of pneumonia, age 12. Ah, didn't a know that was an Abrams. factoid I'd forgotten. Didn't know that was an Abrams contribution. That yeah, feels quite significant. <laughs> <laughs> it must be noted, and I know some purists are, are annoyed by this, that in some of the comics, mm. particularly in the 60s, he was portrayed as a ghost born to ghost parents. Yes, yes, yeah. I, like, <laughs> so it's quite a contentious introduction. I'm sure that, like, forgive me if this is stepping on uh, no, no, go, your please, production please notes, but I know the son of the, the original Harvey Comics publisher... Mm -hmm absolutely hates this film with a passion <laughs> because of because of it stepping on like the kind of pre-established law the law of casper of this, yeah. of this law of casper, casper. <laughs> sorry they tried to make it more emotionally resonant <laughs> so speaking of, of casper then the casting thereof we have um Malachi Pearson, as you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. on, as the voice of Casper. Uh, debut role, I believe. It was. It, he is, uh, and introducing Malachi. Introducing. <laughs> and he's got a lovely voice. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> I didn't realise how much I was struggling today until we were on mic. <clears throat> Do you want to do a good job for Casper? We are doing a good job. The human Sorry. form of Casper, meanwhile, was uh, was Stan himself, Devon Sawa. Who is uh, pre from previous episode, Little Giants. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. A film we haven't done yet. <laughs> but we, first it will come before this. <laughs> oh, so that's why he was close to hand. Yeah, because yeah, he was brought in at short notice. 
And he and Ricci, or Ricci? Christina Ricci. Ricci? I say Ricci. Yeah. I, d- I, I don't d- know if it's right. No, I, <laughs> I did Google how to pronounce it while you were talking. <laughs> I think it's Ricci. Um, yeah, brought in a short notice and he and Ricci met on set. And Silberling uh, only realised that she was the per- he was a perfect choice when he noticed that she was blushing and giggling yeah. at him. So. Yeah, handsome, handsome young lad. <laughs> Tarnished the image when he plays Stan in the music video. Stan. Oh, Remember this Stan? I didn't know. I yes, wonder why he said yeah, Stan. Stan, then I guess uh, Stan, Alex and then Final, Final Destination. Destination. As if he knows Those are his big three. He has name to hand. I watched that movie a lot as a kid Damn. as well. <laughs> peroxide, peroxide Blonde. Another film in which Devin Slim Sauer shady. staves rages against the dying of the light. <laughs> <laughs> Is he still doing it today? He's still, what, 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 still what, working at <laughs> He was in. Um, oh Where my are they god! Now? Previous previous uh, guest. Oh, previous by two episodes by this point. Uh, Jack Buckley and I have a uh, masochistic film club that we do every every week. That started in lockdown over Zoom and has, has continued. And one of the films that we, one of the I pits, love that that's been running longer than this podcast. <laughs> yeah. One of the pits we fell into was a film called The Fanatic. It's Fred, a, a film by director Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit fame. Of course, and it's um, John Travolta plays Moose, a psychotic stalker fan, and he's stalking an actor whose name I forget in the movie, played by Devon Sauer. So mm-hmm. that's, I forgot. He's in, um, recently. he's in the Chucky TV series apparently, which is, is currently ongoing, and it's also popped up in Magnum PI. Hats, which I've heard good things about. Uh, no, he's still very much, still very much oh, going. Good. I, ho- I don't know anything about him. Hopefully, he's a good guy. He's been in a lot well, of a good guys. Yeah. Fun as Um So, Casper is, is the animated lead, which we're going to talk about in more detail shortly. But the real flesh and blood lead, her first lead role, in fact, is Christina Ricci as Cat Harvey. As you mentioned in your intro. Top billing. Uh, before she was cast, Scarlett Johansson and Kirsten Dunst were both considered. Um, wow. How old was Scarlett Johansson? She'll have been a bit older because she's in Home Alone 3. 3. Yeah. I, think, I think she's about... What's that, 98? Or was that 97? 97. The Ghost World come along in the 2000s. That was 2000, I think. That was 2000. Yeah. So she'll be in, what, about 20? I reckon she's about 15 at this point. Okay. Yeah. But so about the same age. Yeah, about the same age. Christine Ricci. Ricci. And Kirsten Dunst, <laughs> I can see Kirsten Dunst like, bringing some of that Jumanji energy. Yeah. But, well, that's small soldier's energy to keep it in the wheelhouse. <laughs> I, I did a little bit of reading into Christina Ricci's uh, beginnings, you know, up to, up to this point, and this is the thing I read that I think is <laughs> it's, it's fabulous. She was um, in the, she was cast in the school play in a role that she didn't want, and the person who got the role that she won, she started taunting to the point that they hit her, and she then reported this to the play's director. This person was fired. <laughs> Ricci got their role. Isn't that some Wednesday That's Adams? Some Wednesday Adams shit. Yeah. <laughs> so after that, uh, she started off in a pair of spoof commercials on SNL, which is what got her got her her SAG after card. And she made her film debut in 1990 with Mermaids alongside Cher. Ah, yes, remember Mermaids. Uh, but you know, as we mentioned, it was the Adams Family and its superior sequel. Bit of editorialising there. You're uh, not wrong. Catapulted her to fame with critics singling out her performance as a highlight. And then, a year later, she was cast Casper, much to the world's benefit. As uh, Dr. James Harvey, Bill Pullman was cast. Now, the list of people he there's beat so, out so is many long and extensive. <laughs> and there's one name in particular that stands out to me, which we'll talk about later on, because I feel like he is 
consciously or no, emulating a lot of this performer in what he's mm. doing. So Tom Hanks, Jim Carrey, Steve Martin, I cast in the net wide. Yeah. John Ritter, Rick Moranis, Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, Michael Keaton, Martin Short, Tim Allen, Robin Williams, Chevy Chase, and Phil Hartman were all considered uh, before Bill Pullman got it. And this is the I think year Bruce before... Willis was at some point. Was Bruce wow. Willis there as well? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is the year before he played what I imagine is his defining role as the president. president yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And before this, he bounced around a lot. I think all I've really seen him in before this is Sleepless in Seattle, where he plays yeah. the, the boring mm. he's in that. stand-up boyfriend. But yeah, Ruthless People, Spaceballs, The League of Their Own. Oh, he's funny Bunch of bits and bobs. <laughs> uh, As chief antagonist Carrigan Crittenden is Kathy Moriarty. Phenomenal uh, name. Phenomenal name. Yeah, yeah, it's a really great name, isn't it? Uh, she beat out the likes of Glenn Close, Kathleen Turner, Carrie Fisher, Miranda Richardson, Sigourney Weaver... And Michelle Pfeiffer, more of a type, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's more absolutely. There. Uh, but yeah, I think perfect choice. She debuted in Scorsese's Raging Bull in 1980, uh, getting nominated for an Academy Award for her troubles. I didn't realize this, but she played John Belushi's quote unquote sultry and dangerous neighbor in The Disastrous Neighbors, mm. uh, which had been which has been invoked on the pod before talking about Belushi in the uh, first Continental ever Divide. Continental Divide episode. Um, she dabbled in some thrillers and comedies throughout the 80s and 90s, got into a pretty nasty uh, car accident, I think, which derailed her for a little bit. Uh, popped up in Joe Dante's Matinee. She did. A few years before this. And then, yeah, in Casper she is. Um, bit less on Eric Idle, because <laughs> <laughs> before he was cast as, as Paul Dibbs Plutzker, um, apparently Gene Wilder, Hugh Laurie, Patrick McGowan, Stephen Fry, Liz and Nielsen, Gregory Peck, John Cleese, and Rowan Atkinson were considered. (laughs) Well, I guess he was in the Amblin pocket after uh, Cape Fear. And one thing I read about Eric Idle and his opinion on this film, which I don't know if it's true, I hope it isn't true, but it's quite funny. He was apparently so disinterested that to this day, he doesn't even remember filming this. (laughs) What's the source for that? I am to be trivial. He's in a... That documentary that we watched, and he's making jokes all the time. Yeah, um, he seemed to be having a good enough he seemed, time. He seemed he was jumping fine. around a lot. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that was acting out, but it seemed didn't seem mean spirited. No, in any no. Way. This was he, in he the... seems like one of the less mean pythons. Yeah, Eric Idle. Yeah, him and Michael Palin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's also yeah. aged better into the present day. Obviously. Yes, yeah, yeah than, um, than 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 to other time other of recording. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the documentary in question was uh, revealing Casper, which was an extra on the uh, standard DVD, uh, mm. which again. Available in all good DVD emporiums. <laughs> <laughs> it might be, maybe he was doing a bit. I know a lot of actors of that yeah. ilk do, pretend, you know, it's a very Bill Murray thing to say. His car seemed quite charmed by him. Yeah. yeah. Like, Kathy Moriarty's like in stitches <laughs> on set with him, like while their hair and makeup's getting done, while they're waiting between takes. Yeah. Just seems like he's got good chemistry with. <laughs> so, <laughs> one of my favourite bits, because like there's a running bit in the documentary where it's like um, trying to talk like, to Casper, like about Casper as if he's a real actor who's yeah. like in his trailer and is acting up <laughs> yeah. in his diva. This is a point where Eric Idle, they ask like Eric Idle and Kathy Moriarty what he's like, and Eric Idle just goes, he's not real. <laughs> 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 he's not real <laughs> it's so funny before I knew what what a Monty Python was this is all I knew of Eric Hyde <laughs> I mean this yeah. and National Lampoon's European Vacation which he cameos in and like we're realising he's part of this foundational comedy troupe it's like realising oh Paul McCartney's not just a guy that your parents dislike for no apparent reason he was <laughs> in one of the most 
<laughs> do your parents not like Paul McCartney? Weirdly, like a lot of parents, I think people are coming around to him now. When I was a kid, everyone was slagging off Paul McCartney. Really? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Is that because he's not the cool Beatle to? I don't know. Hitch I your wagon remember my, I've got a vivid memory of my uncle saying, "Oh, that Paul McCartney's a twat." <laughs> Why is he uncle? Just is. <laughs> but. Um, and what speak, speak, speaking of uh, interesting people, one little factoid that I want to include in this part is um, apparently Dan Aykroyd has confirmed that his oh, yes. as stands in the film is canon to the Ghostbusters universe. <laughs> I saw that too. <laughs> Trying to get something off the ground. There. <coughs> he would not play the role until last again until last year's Ghostbusters after. <coughs> so with uh, the script. Essentially in place, a director, replacement director in place, and the cast in place. It's time for production itself. Mm. Um, the shoot lasted 16 weeks, starting on the 20th of Janvier, 1994, and wrapping on the 8th of June. So, oh, wait, those maths don't add up, do they? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, mm. Wait, that's like 17 or 18 weeks, right? It's like four months, so that's end of. January to beginning January of June. And so it's beginning of June. Just over six, 16 weeks. Should, should we start this bit again? Yeah. So with the script essentially in place, the replacement director in place, and the cast in place, it's time to begin production. Uh, the shoot lasted for over 16 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> do we contextualise this? Do we just leave the whole thing in? <laughs> So with everything in place, uh, it's time to begin a production, uh, which ran from the 27th of January 1994 to the 8th of June of the same year. How many weeks was that? Just over 16 weeks in total. <laughs> Just leave it all in. Just leave it all in. Um, at the behest of original director Proyas, one of the things right. he kicked in motion before he departed, uh, production designer Leslie Dilly avoided the usual Victorian-style haunted house and created <laughs> Whipstaff Manor in the style of 19th-century modernist architect Antone Gordi, which sounds a relation like of mine. someone doing <laughs> <a different. laughs> um, Particularly the Casa Batil- Batillo in Barcelona. Mm. And when my I was watching it with my partner yesterday and I was reciting a few facts that I'd learned from my production <laughs> production research... And when we first see the the mansion, I said, "Oh, this is apparently um, based on a famous uh, a Spanish designer." And she went, "Oh, Gaudi." Yeah, yeah. I wasn't familiar with him before. And he said, yeah, he's, a, he's very much the the big famous yes, yeah. architectural yeah. land yeah. landmark of Barcelona. I'm a simple silver screen boy. I don't know. Who <laughs> I'm a damn first. They haven't made a biopic about him. <laughs> <laughs> I learned Steven. about Gaudi through Casper. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, the build, apparently the building is based on is famous for its whale jaw balconies, mm. dragon scale roof, and the swirled ceiling in, in the film apparently the is a direct copy of what is in the uh, I love that house. I'm sure we'll Bethlehem. talk about it more. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, fun little fact: also, the house was reused. Yes, I saw this too. In uh, certain parts of the music video, everybody. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, back strips back. Oh, man. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> back back. It's back. All right. Oh, dang. We're going out after this. <laughs> Gotta let everyone know. 
preaching to the choir, my friend. Clap your hands. Um, by all accounts, the shoot itself was perfectly fine and jovial. I mean, look, judging by this, the bits that I saw in the documentary, yeah, everyone had a very pretty nice, you ran a nice, nice set. Everyone's happy, looked after. Um, there were quite a few scenes that were filmed and cut for either budget or pacing reasons. The biggest one is a musical scene that was titled Lucky Enough to Be a Ghost, where the three ghosts sang about their mental problems during a session with Dr. James Harvey. Uh, the live action parts were filmed, uh, and then when Silberling showed it to his uh, VFX team, they kind of went, this is going to be several million dollars to do yeah. this sequence yeah. alone, so let's cut that, not cut that, cut that, cut that. Cut that. <laughs> Bill um, Pullman reckons three million was yeah. the estimated Oof. cost of the effects for I that mean, it's a good, sequence. it's, I, not to keep plugging the DVD, it's about <laughs> 20 years old, but there is a... Um, We're physical media boys. <laughs> yeah. There is a side-by-side comparison of the scene itself there and the, the VFX artists, like, uh, not um, pre-vis, but like the pre-previs or whatever that yeah it's like the animation reference yeah. basically isn't it yeah they've got the um, they've got the 3d models of the yeah. ghosts uh, it's, it's cool <laughs> it's cool yeah so give it a check check it out uh, the other two reasonably big scenes were cameos one of them was by director steven spielberg that was to be included in the uh the, the merry sequence yeah with haunting. Clint Eastwood and uh, Rodney Dangerfield and Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. How they get those guys? Were they just in Maine? <laughs> Maybe they may have just been hanging around. Maine. Rodney well, Dangerfield, I like Universal backlot is in a spirit of beginning, so he just can't stay away from Casper. He can't just stay away from those. He just started turning up ghosts. Yeah. But then, when Spielberg's scene was cut for pacing reasons, he was relieved because he sees himself as a terrible actor. Yeah. Even though he's okay in that five seconds in Vanilla Sky. And gold member. And gold member. Because <laughs> my buddy here thinks it's fine the way it is. Uh, one that I uh, was very delighted to, to discover was in, filmed, exists, is a cameo from Poltergeist's Zelda Rubenstein, mm. uh, who was apparently shot out of the chimney and shouted, Go towards the light! And so I imagine <laughs> during the during exorcism the, yeah. montage... <laughs> So, yeah, and their licensing department went crazy yeah. during that bit. I imagine that, that whole sequence as well is a moment where Alex Porras was a bit like, this is not the film I was signing up for. <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> uh, but what I think is most notable about this film that you've hinted at previously is that it's uh, the first feature-length live-action film with a digitally created 3D CGI character in the leading role, in this mm. case taking up almost 40 minutes of screen time. Now, what defines this record is it's the first fully synthetic speaking character or performer with a natural and distinct personality expressing emotion. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty uh, pretty big first for this movie. Very big first. Yeah, which I didn't fully appreciate the significance of until mm-hmm. delving back into this. It's quite... To just add a bit more texture to that, mm. the way that they shot, and this was something that I only really got fully illuminated too with the again the DVD documentary. But um Where can one purchase that? <laughs> and any good retailers <laughs> Please sponsor us FOP. We love you. <laughs> Covent Gardens FOP. But um a lot of what they would do is like shoot the plates that they needed on set mm. with stand ins <laughs> or just the actors and the kind of wire pulls and what have you and then mm. send that over to animation director Phil Nibblink. Uh, of uh, We're Back, A Dinosaur Story and Bible yeah. Goes West vein and he would hand draw Casper into the each scene to then send that off to ILM so they would have uh, wow. 
animated character already in there to kind of act for performance and what have you. Act as a reference for additional performance, which is a nice touch. It seemed like, <laughs> it seemed like something that he said he became much more involved as the process went yeah. along. Like it was almost, I don't know the full, even, even watching the documentary, it's not fully clear how much of that was pre-planned that he would have his tablet mm. ready to go anytime yeah. there was a take. But then they were working with his um, animatics or... As he says, they started referring to them on set, Casper Matics. Uh, <laughs> they have fun. They have fun. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it was like the thing, it, I was quite, it did strike me how much the animated character, mm. the movements and the gestures of it are really in there in the mm. um, CGI performance and they've yeah. clearly been derived from yeah. the work that Nibblink was doing as the animation director. Yeah. Which was it's nice. I didn't know Phil Nibblink had quite a, yeah. uh, as significant a. Uh, contribution to the makeup of Casper as he did listen 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 say what you like about the film a lot of care went into it <laughs> a lot of care went into it I mean we'll, I suppose we'll get into this later as well but we'll talk about the quality of the CGI in this film mm-hmm. okay I'll yeah. powder dry for now <laughs> there was a record number of on screen shots with the digital character with over 350 in total uh, and to achieve this it required 15 months of post-production at ILM with 150 staffers working on the film. Do you think mm. it's wrapped in early June yeah. 94? It doesn't come out till late May 95. Four, yeah, four months of filming followed by 15 months of post-production. Huge. Crikey. And Brad Silberling involved more or less every step of the way. Yeah. yeah. And a, another thing we learned, it didn't have any time because of, I'm assuming, because yeah. of this yeah, extensive yeah, yeah. post-production. They didn't have any time to test it. So. Yeah. When it was going out in the premiere, that was the first time yeah. anyone had seen it. So it must have worked in the post-production time into their scheduling, but of course yeah. with the director leaving and that little probably all would have chaos pushed, back, pushed yeah. back a little bit. But a beneficiary of that kind of uh, rushed focus creativity, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, I just want to briefly talk about the, the score, which we'll go into more detail with shortly because I know he's a big one of your guys. Um, scored of course by James Horner who previously worked on An American Tale and looking at Mike Perry now The Land Before Time and Dad uh, <laughs> An American Tale and The Land Before Time <laughs> and nothing else and Battery's not included <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good score that's very pleasant um, <laughs> something for everyone the tra- even the dads <laughs> the track One Last Wish would go on to accompany Universal Pictures Logos Through Time montage as part of their centennial anniversary. And, perhaps more excitingly, uh, and a film that we're unfortunately not going to cover, even though it feels like... Ramblin' adjacent. Maybe we are going to cover it. Hang on. Before. I don't... I don't think we are. What film? I don't think you are. No, we're not. But if you are, um, I'll be on it. A film that we are unfortunately not going to cover. I had a moment of doubt where I thought, hang on. Is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, Descent into Lazarus was used in the trailer for The Grinch. I'm glad we're not covering it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, in my head, I could see at the end of the Grinch's credits, the Amblin logo coming up. It wouldn't feel terribly yeah, out of place. It wouldn't feel terribly out of place. Um, which was also released by Universal and scored by James Horner. Mm. So all this swelling around finally comes to a stop and it's released on the 26th of May 1995, opening number one at the box office over Memorial Day weekend. It grossed 16.8 million over its first three days and played solidly throughout the summer. Ending with a final gross of 100.3 million in North America and an additional 187.6 million internationally, making a total worldwide gross of 287.9 million on a budget of 55. So pretty good. It's quite an expensive movie to that one. Yeah. 
Critics were famously mixed, uh, although Ebert, my big boy Ebert, gave it three out of four stars, calling it a technical achievement that's impressive and entertaining, and there's even a little bit of winsome philosophy. In his 2015 movie guide, Leonard uh, Maltin said the film was a bomb and resented Casper being portrayed as a deceased child. Instead of a ghost. Oh, he's been not too what? too heavy on his. Uh, where do you think ghosts come from, Leonard? <laughs> <laughs> well, two other ghosts, a mummy ghost, and a daddy ghost. <laughs> where do you think those ghosts came from, Leonard? <laughs> and uh, as as Andy mentioned earlier, Russell Harvey, who's heir to the Harvey Comics uh, fortune, um, thoroughly thoroughly hated the film um, and how it forced child unfriendly humour into an overly dark, completely pointless backstory. Uh, into something so beloved for its innocence. He also expressed disappointment in Steven Spielberg, whom he felt wasted the perfect opportunity for a legitimately heartfelt adaptation. Well, this is a le- this, this is why. Okay, okay this is, this is, we're, we're, we're all getting pretty hot. <laughs> we want to come in, but the dog's got to get off the Jump, leash. Jumpers have been removed. <laughs> Ghost, life doesn't matter that much anymore. So you forget. Sometimes I worry that I'm starting to forget. Forget what? My mom? Just certain things. The sound of her making breakfast downstairs. The way she put on her lipstick. So carefully. I do remember. She always used ivory soap. And when she'd hug me, I'd breathe her in so deep. And I remember, before I'd go to sleep, she'd whisper in my ear, stardust in the eyes, rosy cheeks, and a happy girl in the morning. Casper? Hmm? If my mom's a ghost, did she forget about me? No. She'd never forget you. Cat? Mm hmm. If I were alive, would you go to the Halloween dance with me? Mm hmm. Cat? So I think that is a, a pretty perfect time because we've danced around this and I'm desperate to know how this played to you boys. I'm going to throw the mic initially to Mr. Perry over here, uh, uh, vaunted guest. Michael, what was it like watching it again this time? Okay, I'm going to try and go slowly because we've seen each other several times the last couple of days. I've spent the whole day that we're currently <laughs> recording on with Andy and having conversation points and just every time just being like, oh, what do you think? No. <laughs> so it's funny because we've not shared honestly how this film has held up for each of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, oh, the heat's on because I've got, to, I've got to kick the doors down. I'm nervous and I, I, I need you to say what I want to say. <laughs> but then you can't say it. <laughs> I just want to know it means the same to you. 
it good man <laughs> it good it's a good time i yeah. got got issues here and there but on the whole it just yeah it, it's endearing as heck yeah yeah it's still endearing as all heck it still um still charms me uh, you know not not 100% which, which we'll get into i'm not saying i'm i'm fully on side with everything that goes on in this movie but there's so much that's engaging about it more or less through the entire runtime cuz it's a brisk movie Mm. Um, I found myself just moment to moment really enjoying the experience yeah. and being able to, at the end of it, be like, you know, you take the good and the bad, but on the whole, I'm coming down as a fan of this film to mm-hmm. this day. Yeah. What about you, Andy? Yeah, really to kind of echo. I, it, I, I'm, you know that, that particular moment where you realise you really do care about it is when you do read like stuff like the Russell Harvey quote being yeah. like how they miss the opportunity to make something genuinely heartfelt and yeah. i was like what the hell were you watching yeah. you rushed to give Where the film a sword you? don't you yeah yeah, yeah i'm just yeah. A bit like i'm just like there's no there's i agree there's probably no right in a casper movie being this like emotionally affecting and resonant but here it is um so and judging by going from what casper is spirited beginning and mm. casper meets wendy are yeah two films which are more fully endorsed and backed by the harvey entertainment group yeah, i'll yeah, add yeah, um they're really like just broad frothy family comedies yeah. that really don't really have any kind of ambition to want to be this kind of introspective look on like mm. kind of like it i i it's the first film that introduced me to the idea of trying to grapple with ideas of death yeah. as a child. Yeah. And that kind of like what that means for you as a kid's kind of being faced with these ideas does, doesn't it, it means that this film can't ever lose that kind of resonance and meaning for me, mm-hmm. I think. And particularly, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about as we go more over key events in the film, the final, like you were saying at the start of the episode, the final 15 minutes I, I was a, I was like I was weeping. <laughs> oh, we got him! I, I, we got him! I like it too. So that one of my biggest jump scares of all time is the the head coming out of the hull of the boat and Jaws. And yeah. when you first see it, bam in the face, it gets you. But then every time I watch it since, I'm anticipating it. So my heart starts pounding earlier and earlier in the scene because I know it's coming. Watching this film again now, I knew the moment. I, I forgot the exact moment at which I started crying. Because there's a bunch that happen. Is it when the wife comes back and grants yeah. Casper his immortality? Is it when Casper comes down the stairs? Is it when the wife uh, makes herself known to Bill Pullman and they have a little chat? Is it when they all go? It's all of it, basically. But I didn't know at what point I was going to start going, so I was like, my lip was trembling in the scenes <laughs> leading up to when that <laughs> happened. And I didn't... I, as a kid, I never had this kind of emotional view of the film. It was only watching it at uni 10 or so years ago that I had that connection to it. And watching it again this time, I've never liked it as much as I liked it mm. watching it yesterday. Really? It, 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 I, I am completely... I was on... I looked at it on that because afterwards and I hovered between three and a half and four and I thought, like, who, who am I kidding? <laughs> I, 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 I love this movie. I love this movie. My notes are divided into scary, funny and sad. <laughs> the, the points that I wrote. And I think it, they're all pretty equally weighted. Yeah. It, 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 it's like Mike was saying, it's, it's so engaging and so charming and beguiling for the whole thing. But then it layers in the stuff that ultimately gets you at the end. It's layered in so nicely throughout. And there were some really like 
child existential bits that we like. She, <laughs> Christina Ricci Cat asks Casper, what's it like to die He's at like, one point? That's a line in the kids movie. Yeah. And, and he can't remember what it was well, like. Is, it was I think that's like, such a, like a really like quite like, like yeah. scary and quite haunting idea. This idea like you die and you just start losing memory yeah, and recollection yeah. of everything and you need certain triggers and objects and, and like, yeah. things to remind yeah. you of what that is. Otherwise you end up becoming like Fat so yeah. stinky and stretch where they just pure nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what Cat's dad almost is. Yeah. And mm. well, immediately he's almost he's almost there, he's almost completely gone. But yeah, it just the, the quiet existentialism of it. It's like my first existentialism yeah. this movie. And it's it it's a kid as well. So like I think that's well, part of yeah. part of what's baked into it yeah. as well. Yes, I, I loved it out. I was in the whole thing, but why really uh got this time, which I mentioned previously, is just how much care went into this film. Mm. It's not contrary to what the reports of its production might suggest it's not like a rush job maybe it's a rush job but it's one that's done by people that really care about what they're doing and don't phone it in they're all yeah. bringing it like, again it's sorry, we're, yeah. we're at a point of unprecedented areas of filmmaking mm. in regards to computer generated imagery and this is the first time that someone's really and particularly asking for the actors to really act and react to things that aren't there and this again you've had Elements of this with your big CGI dinosaurs and Jurassic Park, your water tentacles and the abyss, yeah. your your C one thousands. But again, there's like there's enough. They're all largely something that's just going to be in one fixed position. You're reacting to someone shouting off screen what's happening, <clears> or <throat> it's in the distance, what have you, or it's something in movement, something in action. Um, in Casper, it's something that is your, it's your scene partner, and this is real. And again, is it, you can't stress how kind of big this is because yeah. it happens all the time now. Yeah, it's not, it's no longer like a novelty or anything that's really that significant because it happens all the time. But this is the first time that people are having to actually practice that level of acting to some where your scene partner is a tennis ball to yeah. quite this degree, yeah. and having lines off the back, and you can't, you can even it's. As much as I think like the CGI models are great, the characters emote very well. Mm. There's still some kinks being yeah, slightly yeah. worked out in mm-hmm. it. Eye lines aren't quite there in some scenes. But for the most part, the key kind of moments where it's like kind of actor and computer generated mm. character are reacting and interacting. Yeah. It's very smart and economical in the way it chooses these moments. And it's also baked into the story of mm-hmm. the kind of connection with the characters. And it lets it all seamlessly flow. Yeah. And to that point, you have Brad Silberling on his first feature film mm. behind the camera doing this. And you have one of your major stars of this film being a teenager. And Christina Ricci and Bill Pullman, to give them both credit on this, mm. are so deft. No, oh, yeah. Acting really and reacting good. to nothing <laughs> on the day. And yeah. it's really to go back to... He's a hot dad too. Hot dad. Oh. <laughs> I also got a hot ghost dad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the bangs, the, the cardigans, the yeah. The style. Maybe, maybe this is another reason this has hit us on another emotional yeah. level at this time because we're closer to sad dad Bill Pullman oh. than we are to um, to Cat. But um, they both act and react so deftly to mm. what's going on around them. And when you watch the um, the kind of cut see- sequence of the musical number, 
you can see Bill Pullman acting in an empty room. Yeah. And it's amazing. He's mm. really going yeah. for it. And he does say in the behind the scenes featurettes, he was saying, you know, I had to just finish my takes and just look at Brad with sweat pouring out and be like, dude, you're killing me. <laughs> just the amount that he threw into this. And I can't yeah. remember where I heard this or read this, but um, Bill Pullman gave it his all so much in his performance of Dr. James Harvey. And this was obviously him acting to a room where the other characters hadn't yet come into this, come into play. And when he watched the finished movie, he was sort of thinking to himself, man, I thought I was like the, the comic center at the heart of this. I was giving the performance everyone's going to remember, but yeah. like I'm, I'm holding, I'm having to hold my own against these guys. Um, and was really like, oh, I've kind of been like, the scenes have been stolen from me in some respect. It just yeah. means that his energy is the right level though. He, mm, he's yeah. very much afloat with them. Um, it's great. So so <laughs> so impressive. They are both so deft. It, it truly is a marvel. Like like you're saying, it's the first time that it was really your scene partner that's not really mm. there. And to say that that Christina Ricci was what 14, 15 Four, making 10, 15 when she was making that, it. I think, we spoke yeah. about this briefly in Little Rascals, and there's the occasionally preternaturally talented child actor who is not just replicating what they're told to say, mm. but you are making choices more interesting behind something. it yeah <laughs> she's so so precise and so controlled and you see this all the way back to adam's family she's there she's yeah. right in there like dictating that film's comedic tone almost and, and bill Pullman have really nice chemistry they really wow. do she and casper have really nice <laughs> chemistry <laughs> and i think like adam's family slaps we all agree yeah, yeah. and christina ricci incredible wednesday adam yeah. There's something about those performances which, again, is very you know, stayed. It's very controlled. It's very certain of what it wants to be landing and the beats like that it's delivering. But that's because, that's because of the character that she's portraying. Whereas when you watch her performance as Cat, it doesn't feel precocious. It doesn't feel like she's really sort of forcing this no. performance out of herself. It feels very grounded. It feels mm-hmm. like she's very much just delivering totally. an incredibly measured performance that is very mature and one of the things that possibly we'll get into later is not necessarily criticism of the movie but i think cat is underserved and christina ricci at points of the film isn't necessarily underserved as an actor but i think the writing around cat there are a couple of beats that i would have liked to have seen more from but as a performance christina Mm. ricci is incredible in this yeah and to go back to it again at this age i was just blown away by how she holds the whole thing down especially in so many sequences where it's just her and Casper. Mm. I was thinking a lot about the kind of the high school sequences, particularly in this, because like, and I've... Which I'd forgotten about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think like having Sherry Stoner and Deanna Oliver being the screenwriters, there's something quite, feels a lot more authentic and weirdly for a film like this about the kind of like teenage girl experience of this girl who's literally just on moving into teenagedom and is wanting to be treated a bit more like an adult, but it's still in these kind of trappings mm. of adolescence and her father having to kind of also deal with this uh, young woman um, mm. kind of forging in front of him. And like I, that way that kind of played on Casper's jealousy for me was quite interesting this time yeah. that I hadn't really appreciated because it's not so much he's jealous of other boys getting her attention, but her other boys getting her attention. It's like, it's more probably deeper a bit more deeper than that because he's stuck at 12 13 mm. however old it is and he's seeing this girl who's become his friend 
growing up and going through that kind of yeah. like transition and dealing with like more adult kind of concerns or like teenage yeah. hormones and adolescence and you can read it as the, that kind of jealousy but it's also more frustration of being stuck yeah. at that point and seeing someone who's close to yeah. your age start to peel away and emerge yeah, to yeah. Hold on to that moment which can't get, keep you. which makes can i keep you yeah, yeah it's really sad and quite scary and quite, quite creepy, cool. yeah, <laughs> quite creepy. He's, he's kind of a little creep he is a little creep no but he's so cute and polite he's a bit of a creep <laughs> so cute and polite hey guys i'll take your picture <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the guy he does need a few boundaries set though right yeah, yeah, I, yeah. no means no casper yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the scene where um he is vying for her affections as she's getting ready for bed and talking about like she's got a date for the dance mm, yeah it's like dude she, she's got a date. Just, <laughs> just stop pushing Come this. Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> then that can I keep you thing, it comes across like, I can really see what they're trying to go for. I think it's one of those things. Yeah, I think it's that... probably more to this idea of him, him being stuck at that age yeah. and not being able to be with her when she goes up forward. Hence what drives the whole Lazarus project. Thing, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Doesn't yeah. need spelling out so hard, but I think it doesn't need to be so didactic in how it does that because I think it leaves it nice and open. But I think there's definitely flexibility mm. there to see Casper's, mm. like you know, okay, come come on, guy, yeah, so calm yeah. down. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're twelve. <laughs> Remind me a little bit of the romance at the heart of uh, Benjamin Button, which is a film I think's better than than that cultural memory says that it is. But it is that like idea Benjamin of they, they, they've got one perfect moment together, yeah, and. It, it, it's like a, it's fleeting. a sandcastle against the yeah. incoming tide. It's just gone. So it is the idea of losing something that you, you're not quite ready to let go of. Yet. Yeah, like and you're like powerless to actually stop yeah. it from fleeing. Very potent sentiment that just washes over me yeah. completely. It's weird <laughs> having this kind going. of like love story element on it because I have always agreed that like it has that there's a slight air of creepiness around it, but like it's ultimately very sweet and ultimately what Casper does is an incredibly selfless thing at the company yeah. end of the oh, movie. Oh, God. Dick but... ghost dad. <laughs> <laughs> you also have, like, this this B plot. At, at what, what is the instigating plot of treasure mm. in, yeah. the, in, in the, the manor? That's, that's um, the first thing. Weirdly structured this film. That is completely... As soon as um, Pullman and Ricci are in the house, that is completely forgotten about for like a good half an hour, I want to say. Minute, minute. <laughs> it got to like 45, 50 minutes and I thought, we haven't seen uh, uh, Mariana. Yeah, and what? then there's just one and point where he gets them out of the house for a happy hour. And then, you see them and the then they're like, yeah. oh. That's minute, minute 55. So <laughs> you, you, go, you go about 40 minutes without seeing them. Yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. And that is... Um, that is the one. That's the thing that I do think is maybe the biggest hindrance to the film is the lopsided. It's the broadest. Play. It's the broadest element as well. The yeah. villain plot. Um, Although I have to say, when I watched <laughs> last time, I watched it ten years ago. I remember feeling the two plots were much more discordant because one is a much more grounded emotional tale. The other one is a wacky, outlandish, and that is broadly true. But I do think, particularly Bill Paul, Bill Pullman's performance, I found much broader. Yeah. This time than I had before. And I, I felt the two sides did merge better than I recalled, even if narratively it's a bit of a lopsided mess. They throw a lot Tonally, out. I think it worked. I think it's buoyant enough. And yeah. I think that's a lot of Silverling's work to to make it, you know, to to feel a piece. But 
structurally, narratively, the framework's a little bit shaky. Yeah. I dare say. Yeah. There's, there's a lot thrown at the movie, and mm. it's not even like the the storylines that are selected and that make the final version of Casper that we know and as we've now all discussed, love today. Love. There's some, there are parts of it which do feel underserved and there are moments of it that you just completely forget. Mm. And then you get back into a rewatching, oh yeah, there's all this stuff at the high school. I say all this stuff. There's yeah, really see. skeletal stuff at the high school. <laughs> they imposed themselves on her house. Yeah. But I mean, it, it all is something which could lead somewhere good. And I think that's my main criticism with the film is just that towards the end, some of the beats needed more time to actually land it could mm. have like primed the pump a bit better to get some some of these motifs working in concert with each other mm. i suppose I, it's one of those things and it's dumb and it's countercritical. and if someone else said this to me it would annoy me but i think when a film is so familiar to you and so part of you you watch it and you might be aware of certain critiques of it but part of you brushes it off and goes oh, that's just casper that's just that's that's just that's Casper. That's just like what Casper's like. That's, like making that's what happens in Casper. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, no, no. he's a bit drunk too often and comes out with some stuff. He's like, ah, oh, it's just much as much as you are right. It, it, it's just wild how in the last maybe twenty minutes you have this culmination of like the high... mm. Moriarty and Idol return, and that whole thing takes center stage for about ten minutes. And then that's quickly disposed of. Halloween party. The, the, yeah. There are climaxes <laughs> yeah. which are like brought up and resolved incredibly you quickly. You have this, this crazy the comedy, and this we've got to talk about this too. When they both realize they realize they have the potion as part of the Lazarus machine. So in theory, mm. to get into the safe, one of them has to die, become a ghost, go into, into the, the safe, safe, and then out. bring him back to life with the Lazarus really machine sort of, that Casper's almost dad has like, made. Almost Cohen-esque. Montage of them trying to kill each other. Trying to kill each other. <laughs> Dip somehow gets himself into a suit of armor. <laughs> it's, it's really good, and it, it plays to Stop both taking of it strengths. so personally. <laughs> they both have. I think they have great. Chem- I think they're both really yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. They have great chemistry. And you saying on the documentary they were like joking and laughing yeah, a lot on barbs. Yeah. <laughs> and that really, I really does. So as rushed and condensed and weird as it is, the the comedic high point kind of works, and somehow manages to transition into this real emotional I mean yeah, did it get you emotional the emotional crescendo well, yeah, this is it like I sort of like when I break it down rationally I think there are certain points in this movie where it's like this is baggy this maybe is yeah. done too thin but I come away from it at the end being like I had a crack in time watching yeah. that film like I have so much time for it I'm happily happy to go back in again um, and Kathy Moriarty iconic <laughs> she really yes, is completely throws herself into this thing absolutely 100% yeah Eric Idle for me in the actual film doesn't quite it's nothing that I can really remember him being that funny it's more the Carrigan Carrigan <laughs> he says he screams a mean Carrigan <laughs> he yeah. does I remember the moment when he betrays her at the end and he's like ah oh, you're never gonna get this you witch or whatever it is that he says mm. that image of him is like pink shirt Standing oh, by the, yeah, that is elemental to me. <laughs> but it's like it's like, it's like having seen one of the greats perform Hamlet on stage. Mm. It has this weird seeing it again. I was shaken. This image that <laughs> and a little dog called Carrigan. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. He just flicks him out the window. It's great. Does he die? It's yeah, left ambiguous. Die. Isn't it? die. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't. Fly through the wall the next minute with a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. So maybe he didn't know. Right. 
He had no business to finish, though. But he was I'm murdered. Funny. You'd think there'd be some. Yeah. Some kind yeah. of <laughs> it, it, it's funny how the kids defeat oh, d- her the ghost logic. Just like one little like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I guess you don't have any business to attend to anymore. What? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm solid. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> no, I was kidding. <laughs> Easy. Wrap it up. Nice. Mm. Onto the stuff. Well, there's like talking about kind of like really elemental image. Yeah. It, to me, like the bright red Lazarus mm. potion as well, and that dial going in that machine. Um, <laughs> and like to talk to your point of like really liking films with traps and gizmos and what have you. Yeah. You must have a lot of thoughts about that up and atom machine. <laughs> like leads down so into the fun. Lazarus pit. So I, I remember that being a particularly fun element as a kid. Being yeah. like, I want to go on that yeah. chair and get my hair shaved. It, it, <laughs> in the wide shots, it's clearly her. This is a thing they yeah. built that she was allowed to ride. I was so jealous of her. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we were watching in the documentary of like how much of it is just like Guys Dudes pouring up, up foam above. into yeah. a big tube, yeah. just, just puppeteers being up above, out of shot, just going like, like going up and down, up and down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was that was the milkiest part on my VHS because I must have watched that that that, that ride. <laughs> the milkiest bit. part of my VHS. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the image goes. No, no, it describe that. No, never right. <laughs> it's a plasmic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have many thoughts about the? The kind of Lazarus machine and that being a kind of element b- baked into Casper's backstory. That, again, now that you say that JJ Abrams is behind that, mm. that the Lazarus machine does oddly feel like an Abrams note. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it pops up sort of nearish the end, yeah, as a new thing that's introduced. Yeah, and it's a pretty big. It's like at the end of Chappie on the idea of. Uh, <laughs> living on after death is introduced in the final 10 minutes this is a huge thing to bring in at this point it is quite late i feel like it yeah. comes in i have a couple of dangling questions around yeah that i wanted to pose to you perhaps you had like thoughts that they could be conceived as plot holes or maybe just more mm-hmm. so one is the said treasure this is so pirate map pirate writing yeah what's the treasure it's a uh, baseball game in there yeah, but what that, that was what Casper's dad put in there. What did the oh, pirates what were they put in there? For? Interesting. Now, Ooh. my thinking is that Casper's dad found it, and that's why the house is so nice, and he had the money mm. to build this Lazarus machine. <laughs> it's never brought up again as to what the actual like pirate treasure would have been, unless Casper's dad wrote a secret code on this old house deed. <laughs> <laughs> What's the relation between Casper's dad and Carragher? Yeah, like, yeah. that's only just struck Dolly me. Like, asked me. My girlfriend asked me this as well. Because so I if, wonder if, if she's it's... got that on the deed. It's like she's related to Casper. Because I was trying to see if there was like any, and I couldn't pause it, and you can't really see clear enough on what the date is on those newspaper mm. clippings when they find out how Casper yeah, died. Yeah. And he, he does that very. Very sad speech. Um, my my rosebud killed me. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it's implied it's like the 1920s. We're going to mm. go quite mm-hmm. early to mid 20th century. But um, my thought, the relation to Carrigan is like her dad just bought the house at some point. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but that's it's best to think of it that way rather yeah. than <laughs> the other way is far messier. From my, my other. <laughs> One that I was just, it just kind of like made me kind of go out. Uh, um, when a ghost gets brought back in the last machine, so for listeners, if you didn't really watch the film, Casper's dad was trying to build a machine that could bring ghosts back to life mm-hmm. with 
some glowing red potion. And <laughs> Instant primordial soup mix. <laughs> some good lines in this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and ghost goes in, human comes out. What happens to the body of the deceased? Yeah, one of the letterbox reviews for the film is, uh, so is there just like a, a rotting corpse of Bill Pullman oh. lying in the bottom of that manhole? <laughs> it's a question I've never thought to consider. It's fully clothed when, too. Like, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, his ghost, his ghost has clothes. So does Carrigan. So does Carrigan. So is that something you lose as you become Carrigan. a ghost for a longer amount of time? <laughs> It's part of losing your memories, and I quite like you, that. You, you start to let it hang out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you start to let yeah, doplasm just <laughs> hang out. <laughs> yeah, it was just a dark question for him. I was like, so is that the same body, or is it a new body? <laughs> body reconstructed. <laughs> wow. Maybe this is uh, what the Harvey comics creators were so pissed off about yeah. the fact that it's like these have not considered. What we wrote and baked into the original stories, what happens to their bodies? <laughs> they had all this laid out. It's for all them better if your mum and dad are just a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> but what about the bodies, Brad? <laughs> it's good. It's it's funny that it does make you question these. these it does. Things. <laughs> yeah. And what do you make of Casper's very selfless decision to? Left. I like that we really can at this film oh, in reverse. We're really going through the heavy stuff at the back end of this film. We'll come back to the heavy before stuff. Before we got worry. into the uh, the setup. Yeah. I did, it's sweet, isn't it? I, I, it's always it, it's always annoying when... Because that's always wanted. That's always working towards. Once he gets his memories back and he realises what he's about, he wants to get his life back. And I, In my head, like he's gone through this regular, like semi, semi-often. Yeah, like yeah. He has these realizations of who he is and then oh. goes away which is why once he gets it back he knows exactly where, where to go and like what to do and mm. um and then yeah man that goddamn that goddamn stupid drunken idiot <laughs> falls down a goddamn manhole <laughs> I mean, so, yeah is it a manhole is it, is it a manhole it's, it's, it's like an open trench right. open trench yeah, right, right like the road is being I always thought it was a cliff when I was a kid as well because we just see we see Moriarty fall off a cliff out of a car in the scene before multiple cliff deaths so I think the cliff's on your oh that's quite a funny death actually it is just a car door just (laughs) (laughs) it is is so goddamn sad and you do get that little bit of respite when um, I forget the name of Harvey's wife Amelia Amelia played by Amy Brenneman who is the wife of Brad Silverling (laughs) (laughs) lovely um, you get that little relief release of her giving Casper his body until ten, not twelve. Stingy. <laughs> he is twelve. He's <laughs> until ten o'clock, as opposed to twelve o'clock, like Cinderella. So she's been a bit stingy there with two hours. He's twelve years old. No, but like she get, he gets his body back until ten p.m. as opposed to twelve a.m. Wait, hang on. Are we across, it, it, we're are we're we making the purposes? same point here, Josh. Wait, are you saying it's twelve? No, it's ten. No, no. I'm, 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 it's, it's raised just, in the movie. We're just reiterating that she goes, "You're twelve years old." <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's like it's like Cinderella got to midnight. Oh, Cinderella sorry. wasn't right. twelve yes. years old. No, I thought you thought I was. Did you trying to say he was ten? <laughs> I, no, I thought you. I thought you were like, yes, he's twelve. That's not. Yeah, no, I get you. I get you. Yeah, that's what she says to him. Yes, I'm with you there now. You go. God, cut all that. It was very embarrassing. <laughs> it's always good to have this fuel. It's very embarrassing. Um. 
Yeah, now it's, it, he gets that light sort of release. We get that release of him having his body back for a little bit, but it's still like the end of the film is deeply sad. This kid still is cursed to live this life and live in purgatory. Like, what is his? He's clearly got unfinished business. What is that? What is his unfinished business? What's keeping him on? I did think about that in this. Mm. In I, I guess it's to come back to it. life again. That's what his business is. But because like it's implied that like part of the reason he stuck around was to keep his dad company. And then his dad mm. died. Why wasn't his dad a ghost? Because surely his unfinished business was bringing his son back from the dead, unless it was clearly a fruitless exercise. Mm. Seems like there's some element of free will in that, like Casper mm. chose to stay behind and be with his dad. Mm. Yeah. And maybe it's just gotten to a point. Oh, it's his unfinished business growing up. I think it oh. might be. <laughs> That's quite sad. <laughs> maybe it's a keep friend. Now he's got friend. Like, yeah, and uh, to then put the light on the ghostly trio and what their mm. unfinished business might be, just for a moment, let's think about. So I'm going to assume they're Casper's dad's brothers, or like, yeah, I guess. Um, and they were named Stretch, Fatso, and Stinky in their real life to the point where their names were carved on their beds, <laughs> like a self-styled Three Stooges. Yeah. Act. Or they moved in after the fact and died there. I don't know. Maybe they're not really. Maybe uncles, like their but... uncles, like your dad's mate Dave. <laughs> Down on their luck. Yeah. <laughs> so they've got beds in the house. Do you like the ghostly trio as the kind of like more comedic, bro- like broader yeah, comedic okay. element as uh, of the film? On first rewatch a couple months ago, I thought that was the weakest part of the movie. I thought there were. I came away from it thinking there were certain references and certain. Comic beats that are just gag, are very of their time. It's an erection gag? Yeah, again, my, my girlfriend pointed out to me. I didn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> when they're in the vacuum cleaner, when they're in the bag. Yeah. All right. Who, who's, whose nose is oh, pointing yeah. me? That ain't my nose. <laughs> That's not my nose. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the fatso stuff that's probably the weakest part of the source now. Just the, the, oh, mm. the distasteful jokes about Oprah, that sort of thing. But... <laughs> They, they just you, you you do yourself a favor, film. Just don't don't do these. Don't do this. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I think that the bit that tested me the most was the bit when uh, it's the three ghosts first messing with Doctor Harvey mm. on the stairs, and his pants come down. He gets wrapped up in the carpet. He gets a plunger out because I'm God. All that stuff. A little bit. Okay, this has gone on for a while. I could do it. I could do a bit less of this. I think watching the documentary though gave me a new appreciation of it. Just yeah, seeing yeah. the amount of work that went into animating that. Mm. And Bill Pullman having to sword fight in his, in his pants, guys. <laughs> but also worth it for uh, the Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch reference that you get. Is there a Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch? Oh yeah, yeah. When when they um when they cut his trousers down and. He, he goes for a runner. I'm pretty sure it's stretched. Goes, Marky, Marky's not. <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> That's one for Dan Kelly. Shout out to dear friend of the podcast, Dan Kelly. Jeez. <laughs> Something for everyone in this movie. What about you, Annie? Are you fans of the, the uncles? I'll give a take. Yeah. <laughs> they seem to be a, a mainstay even in those um, later director video sequels. And also just a... An element that I thought was quite funny. They're not the same characters in the comic books. There are co- characters akin to 
but they're not named the same. And the reason why they're named differently is because they don't want to pay for the copyright for more than one really? uh, one Harvey Comets character. <laughs> That's why they're so pissed off. <laughs> Jesus. Well, it's a funny history of not wanting to pay the original source, isn't it, with Casper? So yeah. it seems. But, um, I think like the more successful elements for me in terms of the comedy are probably more Macabre. Um, yeah, <laughs> they they are a bit broad uh, on the grand scale of it, but they were they. I, I found them funny when I was a kid, so yeah. that's it. That's yeah. what they're there for, really. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're just like with any of these sort of things, they're responsible for like pop culture references that in like five years after nine ninety five are already kind of going out of date. <laughs> like I, I saw it in in Mike's notes before we recorded. One of the questions was, "Who is the Exorcist?" And oh, it's an SNL guy, I remember right? as a kid, because again, I keep invoking my, my poor girlfriend who's going to hate me mentioned so much on this. Um, she thought it was Robin Williams. And as a kid, I was convinced it was Robin Williams as well. With a big moustache. Yeah, because he's, he's doing a voice that sounds like, well, it's the actor's actual voice, but it sounds like the voice of a Robin Williams character. Yeah, it does sound like he's doing a bit. But it, 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 the, fa- the head shape and the, the face shape's a bit Williams-esque, but... It's it's an SNL character, isn't it? Yeah, it's Father, Father Guido Sacchi. Yeah. There you go. Very much of its time. Mm-hmm. Worked as a uh, gossip columnist and rock critic for the Vatican newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good character. <laughs> and that joke with the twisted head is, is really nicely grisly for a kid's. Yeah, movie. yeah, that's, that's some good like yeah. Death Becomes Her style CGI. There. <laughs> um, speaking of SNL performers, though, weirdly, the the thing that I was in mind of with um, Bill Pullman's performance and the reason it kind of all coalesced a bit more is he struck me a lot as doing a bit of a Phil Hartman performance in this film. I kept thinking, especially knowing that Hartman was considered, mm. I could see Hartman nailing that this is a real Phil Hartman type, I feel like, with some of the wider... It's weird because I, I don't know if I have enough Phil Hartman reference in me beyond... Um, playing smarmy neighbours in yeah. Small Soldiers and Jingle All the Way and his numerous characters in Simpsons The Simpsons stuff. to know like, if it was a good fit. The, um, <laughs> some of the SNL stuff that he's done, like the, the um, um, primitive human who's uh, the, the Neanderthal who's thawed out and becomes a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that. What I do would. I know? I'm a simple Neanderthal who was recently thawed out and is now a lawyer. <laughs> But there, there was a lot of... Because uh, Bill Pullman felt very ma- mannered in a good way. Like, mm. It wasn't him just doing the the Bill Pullman thing. He was doing a, a very mannered comic performance. And uh, it did strike me as very in the Phil Hartman vein, mm. which is ultimately what brought in the broader elements and made it feel a bit less discordant than previously. But uh, I lo- do love Bill Pullman in this role. Yeah, but he gave oh, he's me great. a little bit. Of yeah, I'm kind of. Actually. I'm interested. You say that because I I can't see it as a Phil Hartman performance. Mm. But again, that's possibly because of my limited mm. viewing of Phil Hartman performances. Um, I see Phil Hartman more as a more in a comic light than I do Bill Pullman. I think Bill Pullman conveys the lived-in sadness of the situation quite well alongside the. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. He, I, f- I find his comedy in this is more a reactive comedy than it is an active agent of comedy, um, and I think that he inhabits the role of bereaved parent very well. Yeah, in a few very um, economic ways. Mm. I, th- I think it's something which he's not a great parent, 
but he's a parent who's struggling with his own shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I see that in Bill Pullman more than I do the, the comedy yeah. touches. Because I quite like that. Like, there's that element where they're trying to get the power of the house back on. And he's like, that didn't take long. And then there's Cat, Cat just by like, world. yeah, we're just going to need to buy some more spark plugs in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And like, he's like, yeah, 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 that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. But I, I, like his, <laughs> I like his awkwardness. I think yeah, yeah, it like really it. works Very with true his chemistry life. with Cat. I really enjoyed yeah. the um, conversation they have um, at the kitchen table yeah. where yeah. it's sort of like, you know, how many... Like I, I've I've kind of neglected my parental duties. Yeah. Sort of when they go into the house at the very oh, yeah. beginning. Like, Not that late. <laughs> yeah. When they're going into the house at the beginning, Cat's found her bedroom and he says goodnight to her. There's kind of like a still sort of like awkward lingering. Mm, do do I go? And it's that kind of like, I know this is awkward right now, so I'm gonna leave. And he's just like, my bucket. <laughs> and it's that yeah. kind of the weird nickname of bucket that comes up every so often. And yeah. It's that sense of like. I just have to fall back on these, yeah, these tried and tested methods to sort of like access an intimacy I can't fully express yeah. through how I'm kind of moving and acting yeah. around you. It's I think whole, he's yeah. very good at that. In a few very short, swift beats, mm-hmm. I found that very affecting. Yeah, and like you were saying, Andy, the frustration of knowing that this this young girl you've raised is becoming something you don't quite understand. Yeah, like a part of her parenting you can never offer because she just do not have that yeah experience and yeah your your sight your your partner's gone to yeah. deal with that side oh. of things when which does make the yeah it does make the, the meeting they... yeah it's really hard that bit <laughs> oh yeah it yeah. really does like, all these building and, and even in this like what like you're saying like in this context the performance the, the performative nature of Pullman's performance well obviously performative is performance but what i would call mannered fits within the character because he's yeah. doing a performance of a dad who's aware of what he needs to be doing. Mm. Uh, dad is very is. out of his depth as a yeah. parent and professionally. Yeah. I even wondered um, at one point too when he first freaks out when he sees Casper in the house. Oh yeah, I was like, has he never seen a ghost? I wonder, <laughs> is, he, is, is he a fraud? Is his whole ostensible career a performance? Mm. I did uh, have that thought. Yeah. And it's just not really touched on again. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> it's pretty neat. It's pretty neat that that's there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it all does, it all feeds into that final. I think this is talking about with you guys is making me realize how much groundwork is laid for that ultimate emotional, emotional payoff and why it hits so hard. Yeah. To bring you back to that. So, from some of the more, I guess, over at the comedic elements and certainly deeply sad elements one of the things that's stuck in my mind from watching it as a kid is some of the images are quite scary in this film <laughs> the one i'm thinking of particularly is that slowly developing polaroid at the very start of the two boys screaming at the big look, faces <laughs> the look of the boy on the right hand side his jaw goes down to some unnatural levels <laughs> and when i when i saw it again yesterday it really scared me again there's something about... The opening's nice now. It is. It's, it's creepy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The quintessential did... Spielberg bikes crashing <laughs> yeah. into a shot. Oh, you get a shot. It pans down from the moon. Well, I, do love it it I do love it when a logo transitions into something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you get moon, pan down into bikes crashing into a gate, then you cut to some torturers. You're getting like the three Amblin cornerstones right there. Eat your heart out, strange things. Uh, but what, did you guys have any... Uh, were you spooked by this when you were younger? Do you have any lingering spooks? I don't remember it ever really scaring me, to be honest. I remember the house fascinating me a lot. Mm. Both from the fact that it was quite, it looks, it just inherently looks spooky because it looks quite warped and not really of this world. 
and yeah. it feels like it does exist at this weird kind of pocket that isn't really attached to reality yeah but like in terms of being scared by anything in it no i can't really recall anything ever really particularly frightening me about this film i found found him too friendly (laughs) (laughs) you're too busy laughing (laughs) but you might never spook you not really as a kid this was always a comfort watch rather Mm. than anything i found nothing trepidatious Mm. about this film you seem to be very different. No, like <laughs> not, not massively. I, I do have the kind of uh, advantage here of I've, I can see your notes where you've listed the things you found. No, no. <laughs> this, this is how I've organised the viewing notes that I've made. <laughs> no, it, it, it's more. I remember. I think from the like. The... <laughs> weenie. I did laugh when Captain Moriarty calls Eric Idle weenie. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a groover. <laughs> I just think, uh, when you know when you're a kid and you see a poster and you get an image in your head of what the film is going to be, I think having seen that, mm. again, that royal blue, because it's quite an, a, it's a... dark It's a spooky poster. poster. Yeah. <laughs> it's a spooky poster. And I was really... I was like, yeah. These little creepy Three or eyes, four, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I approached the film thinking it was going to be scary. And so for the first, when the first, like, five minute when the opening is a little bit playfully creepy, it I took it as very scary. Mm. <laughs> I remember always being a bit like, threatened by mm. the size of Cappy Moriarty's ghost. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Why is she so much bigger than everyone else? <laughs> and then that tornado, that when, when, you, when you first meet the three, three uncles and the tornado comes in. That's, that's a cool effect. That's, that's got like kind that. of a that John Carpenter cool. vibe. Yeah, I felt a real sense of dread as a kid oh, when they were first um, approaching. So there were little flickers of things yeah. here and there. That's everything on my list now, Mike. So. There you go. <laughs> it's okay, we're through it now. Um, to go on to Whipstaff though, just more yeah. to that point. Yeah, yeah. Guess just, just let's look the, at your first, notes. Now. Well, the first note I made on the first rewatch was something to the effect Eric of Idle. The, the Will Reader slaps Eric Idle. I just completely forgot he was in the movie. Uh, main looks stunning, but Whipstaff, the iconography really did sear yeah, into yeah. my memory. And coming back to the spiral floor design and the staircase going yeah. around the main atrium, even the kind of like whipped cream ceiling is what I mm. kind of think of it as. Yep. The, the window <laughs> yeah. in um, in Casper's playroom where she mm. wipes the the dirt from it and the light pours through. Yeah, that was really imprinted on me. The whale jaw. Um, just again through watching the documentary it just kind of entrenched how much work went into it but it was Les Dilly was the production designer yeah. and Rosemary Brandenburg was the set director and you just can't give enough props to yeah. those or their teams Truly, yeah. for how this film looks because there are we've mentioned this about the, the CGI as well but I think just from an old school filmmaking perspective they did such a good job with those sets and yeah. it's clear that watching the actors discuss them they were just so impressed and so thrilled to be on those sound stages and it's just joyful to watch the practicality Mm. of that come to life like the Rube Goldberg machines to see the um, set pieces in the big atrium of the wall it feels like such a tactile environment yeah and it's amazing to consider that Whipstaff um you know, you, you only really see small chunks of it, but you feel like you've populated the house by the yeah. time you get to the end. Yeah. It's such yeah. a well-crafted There's a lot world. of secrets within it as well. Like when you mm. kind of think you've got a good lay of the land, then you go into this cab- yeah, cabinet, yeah. Lazarus uh, lab. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I always think about this for like production designers and set builders. 
Um, it must be a sort of job where you can't get like you have to have a good element that's slightly detached because yeah. typically you like you make something so beautiful and then as soon as it wraps you're like all right tear it down yeah. <laughs> well it's the nature of the romance at the heart of the film yeah isn't it? it's just this ephemeral ephemeral exactly yeah, yeah. It builds into it <laughs> <laughs> but I th- what you're saying about um the tactility of the sets and the clear joy that that brings out in the cast and i think right down to what you were saying andy about how the um the vfx artists would give them like reference points for the animations when they to in like influence their performances I think there was a lot being held together to make this environment conducive to a nice, warm, collaborative set. And I do think some credit has to go to the director, Brad Silberling, who is a guy of who... D- not, you wouldn't, in at the deep end. <laughs> not, yeah, not really a name, not really a name of no. He's someone that I've sort of categorised in that Joe Johnston vein. We, we speak about this quite often. It's like those mid-tier, like, disparagingly knock-off Spielberg kind yeah. of guys. But they've got a real sense of craft of their own, I think. And yeah, first movie role, thrown in the deep end, relating to pre-production. But I think from the off, the flair of that opening is really, uh, it's evident how much he's turning himself into it. And from everything we've seen in the documentary on the aforementioned DVD, um, it does feel like he, he created a very nice environment for the actors and he did make everyone get on the same page creatively. And, yeah. uh, and, and it's, it's made something that really works yeah and he's a he's a director again like you can see why spielberg would have tapped in because like spielberg spielberg himself getting his own start on tv with something like columbo and kind of looking to those yeah, similar yeah. sort of places as to <clears throat> where he got his start um because he's sibling siblings of a man with a limit quite a limited filmography and one i've seen more limited of i've only seen yeah casper lemony snicket's series unfortunate events and Land of the Lost. Um, out, of, not out of Africa. Um, City of Angels was City what of he Angels got off got the back next, of this. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is a remake of Wings of Desire. I didn't realise that. Which I've never seen. No. Um, Moonlight Mile, I think, is one that's quite critically well regarded. Mm. Him, but again, never seen it. It's got 10 items or less from 2006. Mm-hmm. And Ordinary Man from 2017. The most well. recent, yes. With, with, with Sir Ben Kingsley in the... I, I think you did a quite Netflix, prolific in television. Yeah, I think you did a Netflix show last year or something like that that mm. was quite well received. But um, yeah, he's not someone that has a massive filmography, but he is someone like particularly this and Lemony Snicket's series Unfortunate mm. Events are very good bedfellows. I yes, think. also a very good, uh, deeply underrated film. I feel. Like. Yeah, I like that movie. I go to bat for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, and, and that is fitting that the Netflix miniseries version of. Let me mm, it's Barry Sonnenfeld, like, and this does feel well s- slightly akin to Adam's Family. I think, I think Sonnenfeld was meant to make the movie mm. originally and right. couldn't do it for whatever reason, and tapped yeah. Silberling to do it. Um, so clearly, they yeah, there's this very aware the shared blood though. Yeah. This does have that kind of gothic, mm. nice little macabre attitude. I agree. I agree. But, um, but yeah, I just wanted to, to just give a shout out to Brad because we're not going to encounter him again. Yeah. And he is a guy that I do, much like Joe Johnston, who um, we, we only have are one. going to encounter. <laughs> yes, we haven't yet encountered. Because in my head, even though I know it's not, I still think, oh, I should the kids. That's Amblin. Yes, definitely it is. Even like Jumanji. Yeah. Yeah. Rocketeer. Rocketeer feels like it would be better. But yeah, this, there's a, and we have there is there is something of to slight tangent. There's something of this kind of guy right now. I think like Matt Reeves is maybe a bit more um, 
prestige version, but he's still like <clears throat> a good consumer craftsperson. Mm. Drew Goddard, Dan Trachtenberg, those kinds of people. Yeah, Dory Day and Sean Levy. <laughs> he's probably a kid uh... to this sort of maker filmmaker. I'm sorry, I think he is. <laughs> Move on. Not to ruin your point. <laughs> Move on to the next point. <laughs> Um, do you have any thoughts on Brad Sibling himself and what he brings to this or his career post? Again, not very well versed in the oeuvre of Brad Silverling outside of this and Lemony Snicket. Um, curious to see how his yeah. filmography gels together and what the through lines are, if there are many to speak of. But I think, again, not to flog a dead horse, I think it is something which you can watch the film and its enjoyability factor is so manifest in it. And the the work that went into it, you aren't necessarily cognizant of. And it has been looking into the documentaries and things to see sort of the, the care mm. that's gone in. And also the capability of it, which yeah. I, think I really got from seeing those discussions with Brad Silberling. He very much talks up how daunting the project was to take on but in he seems completely unflappable yeah in the in the shot footage of him behind the camera in the footage of him on stage interacting with the actors and considering what he's got to juggle where he's got child actors he's got cgi to fill in afterwards he had a musical number planned and filmed Mm. for the most part (laughs) song written recorded (laughs) there there are so many things that he's juggling with it and he seems to at least in the behind the scenes footage take it very much in stride and he seems like he's got a real ethos there of the work is what matters we're going to make something which you know you you can see the quality in the final result it's not something which is like we're gonna try and do the cg oriented film and you know we're we're just here for the paycheck and we're kind of like following these rules that have been set up before me by my predecessor it feels like he's really taking pride in the project he's taken on Mm. he wants to do right by the studio but right by the team he's collaborating with and do right by the people who are taking a chance on him to have yeah, this project. Fully agree. Yeah. I think it does help as well that um going into an ambulance production, he then automatically gets the phone numbers for some of the biggest collaborators for this studio. The, the yeah, this production company as a whole, from Michael Kahn on editing, who's mm. like who who else would you want? Dennis Murren being straight in at for ILM. Dean Cundy is your director of photography. And of course, uh, who we have mentioned before, um, I think it's now the time to really speak about what is probably mm-hmm. yes, the yes, MVP yes. of this whole thing, James Horner's score. <sighs> <laughs> we, have, we have got some tissues. <laughs> Start crying. There is something, and it was particularly watching it this morning. Um, the first time you hear Casper's lullaby is over. It feels fairly innocuous at the time. It's when um, they're unpacking cat stuff in the room, and it, and, it, and, he, yeah. and the portrait of Emilio gets pulled out, and it then starts there. Mm. Boom, boom, mm. boom, 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 boom. And I, I, as soon as it happened, I my body instantly went like, <gasps> yeah, yeah. You feel the the, the, chill the, the goosebumps went straight yeah. over me, and like even from like we've talked about these kind of like the more kind of spiritual weirdly ex- heavily existential mm. kid death <laughs> element of the whole yeah. thing the broad comedy the for josh scary moments <laughs> but like the reason they all do really gel is because you have you have these performances mm. yes you have all these great visual effects but 
part of what really blends them all for me is the is the score that goes from atmospheric spooky the kind of like drawn out strings of like that kind of moment whenever you're going into the manor it's like that then kind of builds into the more goofy kind of (laughs) (laughs) and then you have the deeply deeply felt emotional lullaby of Casper's lullaby that is the backbone of the whole thing and and the kind of choral build up of that oh, in the final moments as God well damn. and it's for a man who has a lot of very accomplished scores uh, both within the Amblin house and outside of it it's one it's probably I don't think it's unfair to say this is his pro- most underrated work because mm. it's just for what I, and I guess it might be that some people just like kind of don't consider to think that a Casper the Friendly Ghost movie will hold one of the greatest film composers of the late mm. 20th century, early 21st century's best work, but it is here. Yes. <laughs> was yeah. it in, I think we may have been living together when we came back onto Casper Josh. This was in our second year of university. Yeah. And Sounds about I right. remember coming back to Casper's Lullaby then, and I think it yeah. might have been prompted by a conversation with you. Were you clearing out your DVD collection well, this is what I was then? Talking about yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I, I think, think that's when, the, for the first time since childhood, I looked back into the Casper yeah. film. Yeah, yeah, I um, I had uh, the blog that I used to have when I was at uni. I had a little section that was like my my shelf of uncertainty of these weird little. Oh yeah, I remember, I remember that, that feature. Blog. That was a good feature. <laughs> and it was just me going through all the all the all the weird little relic DVDs that I wasn't sure would hold up or not, and and. Um, uh, just after this, chrono- uh, alphabetically uh, on in that feature was Crocodile Dundee, which decisively did not hold up. But yeah, th- yeah this... you kept it. <laughs> uh, bought it again. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this th- uh, that the impetus to do that feature because I was like just gone to university. I wanted to write all the time. Like, I was like compulsively wrote blog posts on. Like, oh, well, you're talking to we're, two we're men all, that we're have all blogs. Same, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like trying to create my own impetus to write more stuff just for the joy of writing the practice of it yeah, right? yeah. and uh, yeah I, I Casper was something I, I looked through as part of that feature and I'm like joyously sharing with you guys how great it was to watch it again and how well it holds up but yeah to kind of build into that anyway, like, so that was from yeah so that it was born from that discussion yeah of James Horner in particular so it's like that's is, right. Yeah, that's that what that, that felt like the glue, and we listened to it, or at least re- recollected how much that we did that a couple of times. I think yeah. we had the same yeah, thing with Lamp of War Time as well, and then going back into that soundtrack. There's just something about James Horner's work that feels very of that of that time that yeah. it's too hard to disassociate it from childhood, and there's nothing quite like hearing it again. But yeah. Something of an instant primordial soup mix to his, <laughs> to his music. He had a way of describing it as well in the behind-the-scenes feature we watched, yeah. which was that the score, he felt he had so much care and so much responsibility for it because he felt like as a composer he was almost building a spider web and the whole thing mm. was so fragile and everything had to be put together very carefully, assembled very well, so that then when you take a step back you see the hole and you're just bedazzled by it. Yeah. He had a lovely way of describing how much thought and how much responsibility he felt he was charged with in making the score for this, which is so lovely to hear from someone who's involved in a, a picture that's oriented towards family viewing. It feels, yeah. 
like he's not condescending at all in how he looks at the project he's working on and i think that's what my main takeaway from the extra research into this film is that casper you raise casper the film in conversation today and as with a lot of films we watched when we were kids you'll have friends go i remember casper yeah kind of like wacky film i used to watch when i was a kid but not necessarily something you would immediately think of as you know you you appreciate now as a work of you know art and i'm not necessarily saying that casper is that but i think it's lovely to watch a film in which you can appreciate that everyone who was involved was really doing yeah doing the best they could and really trying to to make the whole elevated totally yeah i think there was another point in that uh documentary as well when he said about how he's at a point in his career where he really wants to be quite careful about what projects it is that he's working on and what ones he's selecting he wants them to resonate he wants them to mean something and like it's quite clear in his like um filmography as well because like in 1993 alone he did one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven different scores mm-hmm. and that must be, he must be so stretched thin as a composer and an or- uh, an orchestrator there that you would just feel so drained by that kind of experience of having to put that together like put all these scores together yeah and then from that point onward he's doing three or four films a year and I think in 95, I've got it here, he did Braveheart, Casper, Apollo 13, Jade, Jumanji, and Bolto. All kind of within people he works with. Yeah. Again, a bit more, a little more selective. And all really big scores. For High them, actually. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, They're all uh, really great scores. Two, <laughs> two Oscar nominations. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think again, he... I think it really plays into how this hits that, mm. that feeling of like being a bit more selective about what we're doing because even towards the late 80s he's so overworked <laughs> i think he yeah. has a he had a real understanding and appreciation for the attachment that we have to movies when they they hit us on an elemental level and i really get that from his scores of the films i've seen and the scores i've listened to he seems to really come at it with absolutely no baggage or preconceived ideas of why he's doing this or like if he's working for a particular person he seems to have the same level of sensitivity when he's doing it and i think what's lovely is that you see his whole um his whole catalogue of work and there are so many family oriented films in there and it's this understanding of you're going to see something and this could have an impression on you like i this part of the work is really going to have a lasting effect and again to go back to the land before time it's something which he understands without necessarily resting the the spotlight away from the film he knows how to contribute and he knows where to lace in those grace Mm. notes and he knows what his responsibility is as a composer because again the music is something which is going to be such a an instant memory for people when they think of his pictures that he's worked on yeah and this has turned into something of a James Horner tribute. I'm sorry about that. No, I'm but, quite happy about that. But, but, but again, to, to, discover Cas- to rediscover Casper in adulthood through the score primarily yeah. is testament, I think, to the work that he did without him ever seeming to try to push mm. for his creative control yeah. or sort of push for his name to be up in lights. Mm. It felt very much like he was someone who was a career man and he was someone who just really believed in the art in a very yeah. cool yeah. way. Yeah, like building orchestras as well. He was, he was a big proponent as well of um, 
finding new talent and bringing them into the orchestrations. Yeah. You'll quite like this little bit tidbit. His uh, one of the kind of his underlings on this one was Don Davis, who was oh my Matrix boy, yeah. Who yeah. Was oh really? The Matrix trilogy. He hasn't oh, had so cool. uh, a, a massively expansive career. No, again, he goes a bit more back into score arrangement and mm. orchestration and conducting himself. But again, like even James Horner and his like up to his last days, really, because like for listeners who don't know, he tragically died mm. in a plane crash in 2015. No. It was a plane crash. It was, yeah, it was. He was. He was flying his own plane. Jeez, I didn't realize that. And um, he um, had this kind of system in place that if you were a student filmmaker making your thesis film at, I think it was USC. I might be wrong, hmm. but an American film school. If you submitted your film to his foundation, he would, and if he liked the film, he would score it for you for free. Wow! And that's that's nuts. <laughs> But so yeah, but I think selfless, it speaks to the kind of point you're making, yeah. Mikey, about how he he does just feel like just really committed to the process and, and the story at yeah. hand. It's just team players who don't have that pretense, they don't have any airs or graces. They're like comfortable enough with their own abilities and with enough love for the craft. They just enjoy the work. They just they'll give mm. everything the same credence. Although I will say this, he he got to a point. In, towards more the end of his career that he d- would reuse cues and if, you, <laughs> if you've ever seen the Spiderwick Chronicles Casper's lullaby is in there <laughs> yeah. they all do it though. Home Alone's in Harry Potter <laughs> and which of these that does that does tie into the impression I've got from Casper and watching it now and having watched the extra material is that you could watch a film like Casper open today and it, yeah. it would just sort of, you would write it off as something like, you know, okay, they've turned out another family-friendly film with these CG characters and this um, this plot contrivance that seems like I, it's cut and dry. I know exactly where it's going from the mm. get-go. And with Casper, it's not necessarily a film which is full of surprises, but you watch it and even if you don't have the attachment to the film that um, people of our generation possibly would. Particularly the three of us. Particularly the three of us. You can really see that it's made by people who aren't just working for the paycheck. Yeah. yeah. It does go above and beyond in multiple areas of Which I really think would be an easy thing to do with a Casper the Friendly Ghost movie. Completely. There's so much in this that could be such low-hanging fruit. Yeah. There's so well, many there are... areas where it could have been phoned in. There, there are, are two, two other movies. <laughs> well, yeah, but <laughs> perfect illustration. In which that's the case, yeah. Um... He is an IP I'm intrigued hasn't been tacked up again in recent years. Yeah. So we'll see. Looking like the last... I wouldn't be surprised if like, there's going to be someone looking around for something that hasn't been touched for a while. Yeah, I guess since Scare School finished in, yeah. I think it was 2012. Maybe there's uh, some like muddy rights issues with Casper. Mm, the Harvey, oh, yeah, the Harvey <laughs> Comics coin family's withdrawn all the rights. <laughs> no, nobody gets it. It's only me. Uh, but any other final thoughts to say? But like, uh, I think your sentiment there, Mike, is quite nice. Mm. Round off point. It does mean a lot for particularly if you're a '90s kid like us three. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, just through like watching it now, I can sort of see areas where it hasn't aged particularly well. 
or story beats that you think, oh yeah, this is kind of uh, half forgotten when you yeah. get deeper into the story. There are yeah. areas of it which don't come together the way that you perhaps hope that they would. But you still come away from it at the end, or I certainly do, and I'm sure you guys do as well, where you just think, that was a, that was a fine movie. Like, mm-hmm. I, I will still return to this year after Lovely. year. I felt things here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lovely hearty stew after a, a, a cold autumnal walk. You come in all cold, ruddy-faced, and you sit with a nice little chunky stew with some crusty bread with butter on it by the fire with your family. That's what this film is. It's lovely. Thank you, Casper. <laughs> also, I do want to say that the living impaired is a very funny phrase. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a very, very it's a solid joke. The jo- some of the jokes in this are really solid. Yeah. And yeah. I also really like that uh, throw-off line that Casper says, like, what are you made out of? It's like, you know that tingly feeling that you get when your foot falls asleep? Falls asleep? I think I'm made out of that. <laughs> I think watching it as an adult, I was more aware of like Dibs's contributions to like just like little little barbs here yeah. and there. Just there's a fantastic bit that I'd forgotten about early in the movie where she like flings the the deed away in in rage, and he goes, "Now, Carrigan, this is condemned seafront property." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even that. Oh, oh there's one was like. Uh, 15 million to the Patagonian wasps. Yes. <laughs> 25 million to the Dominican Dalmatians. <laughs> Forget the livestock. Forget the livestock. <laughs> I think it's possibly just through to the the general lack of street screen time that they get that Carrigan and Dibs are sort of diminished in the story. Yeah. But when they're on screen, they're, they're on so good. So much fun. And again, I can't say enough good things about Kathy Moriarty's performance in this. Yeah. She's completely understanding of what she's being asked to do and she's so fucking good at it yeah we almost made it a whole thing without swearing let's leave that one out oh really make this kid kid friendly (laughs) I'm sorry I I think I was very conscious I always allow us two two swears and then like if there's only two swears then the explicit uh, label because you're gonna have one F word in, in it. Exactly, that's my that's yeah, the, the it's way. It's like I a go. season of BoJack Horseman. Like you've got your threshold built. <laughs> in. They have the one that they drop in there. Yeah, I like think the I think one... they do that more for like dramatic effect rather than yeah. for allowance. Are there any other thoughts you want to say about Casper or? Are we done? <laughs> Is this a spirited ending? <laughs> <laughs> um. There are great swathes of notes that I made during the rewatch. I was like, I want to draw attention yeah, to how same. good this moment yeah. is, but. I think it's just a case of, well, you, you know what they are, just go and watch them again. And, yeah. 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 It, it's something which, yeah, I'm going to be returning to. Uh, it's nice that we, it, it's almost, it's not nice that this doesn't have a bigger cultural footprint, but it's nice, it does feel distinctly ours, that it's not mm. mentioned in the same breath as, like I said, something like one of the high-end Amblin films. It's sort of like things easy. as well, whenever it kind of comes comes up in conversation or like you kind of won't mention it in passing to it. A friend of a similar age, and they look at like, "Oh yeah, Casper." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a friendly ghost. He's well yeah. liked. How do you guys contextualize it thus far in the rambling filmography? That's a good question. Because we're, we haven't done, we've, we we've haven't had taken a weird decade. Yeah. We've, we've had a weird decade so far. We've had we? a weird decade. It's been so very far, bumpy. Michael it's been <laughs> very Ted Lasso we've season. We've definitely <laughs> seen the worst of <laughs> Hamblin so far I'll in say. the 
even in the last two years, I would say. I would agree. Of uh, the Amblin filmography. Because yeah. um, you're in the woods in the beginning of the 90s. Yeah. We're, the, we're coming the ship, up to a really good run. The ship has itself here and there. But yeah. We're coming up to a run that I sort of describe as like a, 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 an attack on the attention of young boys. Yeah, we're like getting like small soldiers. Mask of, of Zorro. <laughs> yeah. But this feels very classically Amblin, not in a way that's cynical or reverse engineered. This feels very much like, oh, the filmmaker just gets... The mission statement of this, yeah. uh, of this, this company, this like, not company in a corporate sense, the company like a, a band of brothers is a yeah, and particularly I think because this is immediately following Little Rascals and Little Giants, two films that didn't really have yeah, didn't do a lot, um, didn't make much money, wasn't there, it's not much really around them for in terms of kind of cult like big affection for particularly for people within our group and our age group mm. and this feels like a bit more back on like you were saying back onto that kind of track where there's a bit more to it there's yeah. a bit more there's more than just the kind of like a movie for kids that yeah. was released in the 90s mm-hmm. it, it's like this is something that's got a bit of heft to it it's something <clears> that's treated a bit more i know it's like it's got a bit more of a lasting punch whether that is just me having that attachment to it already it just, it just just feels a level above the kind of like last yeah. couple of things we'll, we've we'll done. We'll see how the rest of the night is just pan out, but it may, maybe this is going to be a reset point because this, the first half of the decade is yeah. bumpy as hell. <laughs> the second half we're looking forward to because there's some good, you know, we, we were both young boys at one point. We still are emotionally and mentally, I think. <laughs> so the next, you know, five years of uh, Amblin films do play to us and our weaknesses they do they but, really uh, do this does feel like a point that nicely resets and recalibrates mm. the emblem ethos and we're getting into dreamworks for all that time as well so yeah. we're gonna have a very interesting shake-up oh yeah of, uh, the attentions are slightly yeah, yeah like yeah they're going to other places so the burg is split katzenberg is, is getting his mitts into yeah. amblin and they're so, so Amblin, even Amblin's input output, even um, towards the late nineties, yeah. early noughties, just really quite dramatically shrink. Yeah, um, it's now gotten more. It's gotten to this day. It's gotten back to its kind of output as it yeah. was kind of around this era. But yeah, yeah. This does feel like we're kind of getting to a bit of a crescendo point of Amblin as we kind of go because this is right bang in the mid nineties. Yeah, so we're really at that high point before it starts to drift off into again kind of mm. slightly more weirder obscure territory it's funny, <laughs> it's funny to have mentioned the kind of uh the, what you said earlier josh of like uh, eat your heart out strange things where this feels like it's not so far removed from the milieu that Sh- spielberg was mm. i nearly said shakespeare <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh here we go very telling from, from what spielberg spielberg was working in in the 80s that the homages feel slavish. It feels more like it sort of it understands the IP that it's working in and just delivers it in a very. I honestly think it gives the IP so much more credit than it deserves. <laughs> it gives it yeah. so much more heft than it deserves. But, but I think it, you watch mo- beats in this and you think this is a, it's like a classic Spielberg mm. movie. It sort of has some of the similar iconography. It has the same level of care that's gone into the score or this. Obviously, it has Spielberg as kind of a guiding light for yeah. Brad mm. Silberling, who's kind of taken under, under his wing for this project. But it doesn't feel, and maybe this is personal bias talking as someone who's sort of grown up in this era and watched kind of more products latch onto 80s nostalgia 
as their selling point, but it feels like it's close enough to the time that it doesn't feel like a slavish homage. It feels more like we're operating within the system and we're going to like have these little references, but that's not going to be the main selling point yeah. of this. Mm. We're not going to be selling you on the nostalgia. It's just more that this film is part of a canon mm. that we're still working in. Yeah. It's reinvention. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it gets it, but crucially, it's got integrity. And that's such mm. an important thing in what makes this film's work. And it's why I feel like Brad Silberling, Spielberg giving Brad Silberling a chance works better than when he gave... What's the guy that made Dad Called? You know, like, oh, through... Gary David Goldberg. Yeah, like, here's a TV guy. You you have a go. Okay, you know, that didn't work quite so well. You know, mm. bit of a, more of a hollow experience, that one. Mm. You need people... You, well, and I think also in the kind of antithesis to that, that, like, Gary David Goldberg was quite an established name in TV. Mm. Brad Silberling's a journeyman director in TV. Yeah. And this is kind of where you're picking from is a big, big factor. <clears throat> but the willingness to grow the stable. Yeah. So it's there. It's their hits. <laughs> yeah. And it is sad that Silverling didn't make more under the Amblin banner because he does feel like he fits. <laughs> yeah. He, he does for sure. <sighs> Good picture. Hey man, I don't what know picture. how long this has been going on for, but this is this is cre- this is stimulated a <laughs> very involved conversation. So if nothing else, there's meat on these bones, on these ghostly bones. There is. There's, there's flesh to, on uh, these ghostly bones. There's a lot <laughs> to uh, fleshies. Yeah. There's a lot to digest the and then allow to pass the through us. Fleshies in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> Do we have any other unfinished business? Gentlemen. Oh, very good. Uh, very good. I think I'm pretty satisfied. I think I'm pretty satisfied. Ow, I was only kidding! Ow! <laughs> what was that? I'm trying to do the Kathy Murray. <laughs> you guys are disgusting, obnoxious creeps. Thank you! Universal Pictures and Evelyn Entertainment. Are we scary or what? Invite you on a wild, wondrous ride. Hurry up, come on! To the other side. we did put out some feelers for tweets as normal um we did only have the one response in regards to the actual film itself (laughs) and that was uh from previous guest of the podcast daniel kelly at deacon around on twitter who simply said this movie reminds me of breakfast cereal dropping an ebay link to a vintage... Oh, I've just noticed that the offer is ended now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I wonder if anyone anyone got it. But um, it, Does it, it doesn't say... Like... <laughs> no, it doesn't say if anybody actually bought it. I don't know if no. that information is public. <laughs> the item's it, no longer available. No longer available. But it was a, a Kellogg's Cornflakes box um, that contained Casper Glow-in-the-Dark stickers. <laughs> From 1995. <laughs> <laughs> uh, episode guest Michael Perry asked Dan in response if he ate the stickers. <laughs> and Dan said, I believe one was stuck to my bed frame until the age of about 13. I feel like I recognize these stickers, but I don't know why. Because I never well, had them. It was way before my cereal eating time. <laughs> maybe uh, an older cousin maybe. had them. On the fridge, <laughs> there was a there was a scream 
cereal released for the new Scream movie this year. Some of the connected items. I know. I've also just started looking at that. Pretty wacky. A rare World Cup 2002 bowl collection. <laughs> people, do people, are people saving these cereal boxes? Uh, yes, I think they are. Jesus Christ, boxes. it's one from 1999, 1995 that has Wolverine X-Men on it. That's £163. What? There are whole, I mean, you and I, we're physical media guys. We like to collect certain things that I think they have immediately apparent value. Mm. But there's a whole world of completism and collectionism <laughs> that we don't even we don't even touch the surface of no i have seen there's a pizza hut fatso toy hand i just saw yeah that looks pretty good pounds plus three pound 99 plus of packaging 20 <laughs> off a coupon uh I, all the all the all the time products that you can think of i'm sure <laughs> i wonder if we have any like, really niche collectors as fans i'd be very curious to know if anyone listening does have a very niche niche predilection mm. uh, that you pursue to very financially demanding ends. Do you collect what cereal boxes thing? and their <laughs> uh, uh, and their prizes? <laughs> I recently which my, fell in... which my father and I quote often called. Why do you want that tat? <laughs> <laughs> I recently fell into the Tarantino podcast, um, which is quite quite enjoyable. And uh, they are working through the video cassette archive from their old video store they used to work in, and um, they talk about how expect like what you can get these equivalent videotapes for now on eBay, and they're in the hundreds of dollars. It's Jesus. wild, yeah. This VHS revisionism, yeah. <laughs> to have money and very specific interest. Well, we have the latter, I suppose, just not the former. Yeah. <laughs> One day we'll collect our cereal boxes. Uh and that was unfortunately it in terms of Casper. Uh hopefully comments. we've said enough to make up for the the relative lack of, of contributions. One thing that we did want to draw attention to though was uh, as the year draws to a close, um people have been doing their Spotify wrapped of twenty twenty two. I almost said 2020 then. I lost, lost, lost two years. <laughs> uh, and uh, you can do them for podcasts as well as music. And Indeed. we got a lovely tweet from Mr. Matt Griffiths, at the Matt Griffiths on Twitter, who says, Thank you, Ramden Amblin, for being my top podcast on Spotify this year. I loved all 2,968 minutes of it. It's a lot of minutes. It's a lot of us talking. <laughs> so, Matt, thank you for the lovely tweet. And, uh, yeah. and thank you so much for listening. It's very, very sweet to know that uh, that people people can discover this. Exactly. It followed that up after we did send our thanks to say listening to you guys has not only reignited my love for rambling, but movies in general. That and you made me laugh and got me through some tough times. By the way, Kermode and Mayo were second on my list. So yes! <laughs> Take that, Kermode. Take, that. Take the little wins <laughs> we can. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, to echo yeah. Josh's sentiment there, it's, uh, it was a very sweet thing to mm. get and to to read. And um, yeah, it does. Because I think we would do this if only um, us two ourselves were listening back to it. <laughs> so it is nice to hear that and to see it reflected in kind of stats over the year. Yeah. Now, I mean, I've been happily plugging away. And thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I've been happily plugging away at this for the last two years, under no illusions as to people listening to us, thinking it was just <laughs> you and me doing it for our own sake, and a couple of friends here and there who themselves don't even listen to all of the episodes. <laughs> so it's nice that we've attracted uh, 
exactly. Up 68% year on year. (laughs) 19 countries and some other other stats that will not interest anyone except ourselves. Ah, lovely. Well, yes, a lovely that, close that to was a lovely the, episode. That, that was our mailbag for, for Gasp. It's more of a male sachet. <laughs> so I think that's a hearty rambling recommend for Casper if you haven't seen mm. it in a, in a recent time. Big time. But, um, we're going a bit more into prestige drama territory in our next episode. We're not quite in the the <laughs> movies Silly made boy for boys of the, late, of the mid to late 90s quite yet. For our next film will be um, the first of a few Clint Eastwood Amblin joints, um, his adaptation of Robert James Wallace's novel, The Bridges of Madison County, <laughs> starring Eastwood himself and Meryl Streep. Um, in case you don't have the film on disc, it is available to rent or buy digitally from Amazon, Apple, Chile, Google Play, Microsoft, Sky Store, and YouTube. If you have any strong thoughts on the Bridges of Madison County, Madison, Madison County, Madison <laughs> County either way, please do tweet us at Ramblin' Amblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. And then while you've got your phone in your hand or your device of any kind, do go on to your podcast catcher of choice. Give us a rating. Five stars would be great. Really great. <laughs> uh, and maybe a review if you've got time. It really does help with us. Tell us if Casper makes you cry. <laughs> Will this be the new um, table setter? Is this Casper the one? <laughs> it worked on Andy. Probably... It worked on Andy more than ET. It did work on Andy more we than ET. We can give people a choice. We can give ET, Land Before Time, and Casper. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the choice. Yeah, I like that because two of those have made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> and not the ones you might think. Uh, but no, be in touch with thoughts and let us know how much you're loving the podcast. If you're not loving it, don't say anything. <laughs> and I think the last thing to do is to thank you very much, Michael Perry, for yeah, joining man. us again for our episode on Casper. Absolute joy. Just yeah. lovely Being spending time with you guys. Looking forward to this one for a while. So I'm Indeed. pleased it was as delightful me too. as I yeah. hoped it would be. This has been Ramblin' and Amber podcast, all about 1995's Casper. It's been an absolute joy. I've been Andy Godian. He's been Mike Perry. And you're Joshua Glenn. (laughs) And we hope you join us all next time for our episode on the Bridges of Madison County. Until then, take care. And little Richard, play us out. (laughs) 